She's dead. Wrapped in plastic. Hurting me. Hurting me. Twin Peaks is different. Long way from the world. You've noticed that. Now there is a chance that the person who committed these crimes is someone from this town. The owls are not what they see. Possibly even someone you know. Laura had secrets. Fire. Walk with me. Welcome to Now Peaking, a Twin Peaks retrospective podcast. I have no idea where this will lead us, but I have a definite feeling it will be a place both wonderful and strange. Featuring the now playing podcast hosts, Jacob. He greets the day with a smile and confounds adversity with a kind word. Stuart. I too have been touched by the devilish one. And Arnie. I like to think of myself as one of the happy generations. These podcasts will spoil only the episode of Twin Peaks being discussed. So join us and listen as we prepare for Twin Peaks Season 3, coming this summer on Showtime. Diane, it's Friday, February 24th, 2017. Exactly 28 years from the day high school homecoming queen Laura Palmer was found murdered on the outskirts of Twin Peaks. I'm your host, Stuart, in L.A. Arnie from the Black Lodge. And this is your damn fine co-host, Jacob. Welcome to Now Peaking. And I gotta say, guys, this is, forgive the pun, a peak moment, I think, in our coverage of David Lynch. We've been going through his whole filmography, and Tuesday we just released our thoughts in a podcast on Blue Velvet over at Sister Show Now Playing. Easily my favorite David Lynch movie, but if anything's gonna rival it for my affection, it's gonna be the pilot the movie we're here to talk about today, I guess I'll call it the movie, the kickoff to our coverage of Twin Peaks, the soap opera, or is this two-hour pilot. I'm right there with you. We'll go into it a little bit more detail, but this is why I hoed the long row I did. <laughs> there were some <laughs> dark moments of Lynch for me where I needed to see this Twin Peaks light at the end of the tunnel, but... We don't do television at Now Playing. <laughs> We're not. We're not Now Playing. This is Now Peaking. We had to create a whole new podcast to separate that identity. Well, here at Venganza Media, we did TV once before. Republic Forces Radio Network covered the Clone Wars. And I found out television is a different beast to cover. And so we've stayed away. But if we were going to come back... Twin Peaks would be what would bring me back, releasing an episode a day. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> no hard demand there. Yeah, it's not just watching and recording a few television episodes, editing, posting. This is going to be an intense thing. They teach college courses based on Twin Peaks. I feel like we're in the summer session. <laughs> We're actually on the day. What thrills me is this is literally the day, Friday, February 24th, 1989, in show universe is the day that she washed ashore and they kicked off the miniseries. Now, of course, the TV show premiered the year later, April 8th, 1990, 
Easter Sunday on ABC TV, and I was there, boy. I had heard the hype, and I had loved Blue Velvet, and I heard the creator of that crazy movie was going to do the same thing to television. And I have a very distinct memory. For some weird reason, my dad had decided we were going to tear up all of the carpeting in our house and stain the hardwood floors so they'd be this beautiful pine color. How Twin Peaks is that, right? Except the exhaust was not very pine smelling. It actually poisoned him. And he <laughs> like had passed Jeez. out. He's dead. Wrapped in plastic. <laughs> well, every commercial break, I would run down and hold a mirror to his nose just to make sure that he was alive. <laughs> and then I would run Jeez. back and watch the next segment of the show. I wasn't going to miss the show. I mean, unless he was like flatline, but it was legitimately a concern for his health. But I was so into the idea of this show that only during commercial breaks would I attend to my father's inhalation problems. My only question is, I mean, it's been 27 years. Has he yet found that letter you shoved deep under his cuticle? <laughs> I didn't do it. <laughs> Blame Bob. <laughs> but I was a big fan. I'm as big a fan of Twin Peaks as I've ever been a fan of anything in my life. To the point that, yeah, there's probably some embarrassing moments in my geeking out. I was, I was that kind of fan. <laughs> oh, let me share one of those geek out moments. I had heard of Twin Peaks. I mean, I didn't watch it when it premiered, but Who Killed Laura Palmer was to 1990 what Who Shot JR was to 1980. I mean, I didn't watch Dallas either, but I wanted to know who shot that guy. And Who Killed Laura Palmer, it was in the zeitgeist. Now, people who listened to Now Playing for a long time know I moved away for a bit in my childhood from Springfield, Illinois, where I grew up. I lived in Florida for a while. I actually moved back in 1990, so I had other things to worry about than television. I was packing, I was leaving friends behind, I was moving back here, and one weekend I was house-sitting for my sister, dog-sitting, and Stuart's like, oh my god, you've got to see the show! I've taken every episode! We need to watch the show! I'm going to bring it over! We're going to have a Twin Peaks weekend! We're going to do... We were going to binge-watch before there was a term for binge-watching, and Stuart didn't just bring videotapes. Oh no! <laughs> You're going to bring out the pine saw, aren't you? Oh boy. First, I was 15. I had never gone grocery shopping for myself. But Stuart and I ended up going down to a grocery store to buy coffee and donuts and cherry pie. And we bought way more donuts than two people ever should have because Stuart laid them out on the table, just like the Twin Peaks conference room. You know, I wasn't the only one doing this. This was a thing at the time, Twin Peaks parties. At least I didn't like wrap you in plastic or anything. I mean, it could have been weirder. <laughs> oh, uh, let me take it weirder then. <laughs> you took little cups and decided it should smell like pine and poured <laughs> pine salt into the cups for air freshener. <laughs> it was very Rocky Horror Picture Show, which I had also just seen for the first time around that time. And the whole idea of, yeah, audience participation. I was so into this world. I was so impressed with how distinct, how singular Lynch's creation was that I wanted to live there. I mean, if I knew it was a real place, I probably would have run away from home and just gone there. I was I was that obsessed. I'm just curious. In the past 27 years, have you learned that pine salt smells nothing like pine trees? <laughs> that scent was wretched. And then you're like, eat pie. I'm like, this place stinks. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, you know, I, I was into it. And I, very few things in my life do I remember being that into it. But I figured you would be non-judgmental about that. You know, you, I had seen you go through similar fandoms with, with Trek and Star Wars and everything else. Manglores, even. I mean, just everything. Smurf Village. Remember all those times <laughs> you'd look at me and humor me and be like, all right, you're going a little too far? That's how I felt when the Pine Sol came out. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't wrong. I, I I was actually deeply embarrassed. As big a fan as I was, I was also a closet fan because I knew no one else in my life that was watching the show. I think you got to remember at the time it was labeled a soap opera, which we're talking about Dallas, Dynasty, Knott's Landing. And those weren't cool to high schoolers. So when I went to school or when I went to my after-school job, there weren't people talking about who killed Laura Palmer. I was alone in that. So I had to, I had to make super fans like me. I had to turn you into one. And I got my mom to watch the show as well and my brother, but he was away at college. So we could only periodically talk about it. But yeah, oftentimes I would be watching the episodes alone and, you know, writing them down in journals and making all of those things completely on my own. It was it was kind of a Unabomber, crazy, <laughs> out in the woods kind of uh, mentality for about 18 months until the show got canned. The irony was for all your preparations, we only got through the pilot because we spent so long pouring pine saw and buying <laughs> pies that we didn't have time to watch the episodes. I ended up just watching this when it was rerun in the summer leading into season two. And then I saw all of season two live. Sure. And I had no steward in my life to get me into this show. You know, a, a few years younger, my parents ruled the TV. We had one TV with cable hooked up to it. So whatever they wanted to watch is is what we got to watch at night. And I, I think they got to episode three. We'll, we'll get there eventually. And the television show got very weird. And they're like, mm, no, this isn't for us. So I, it was always something in the back of my mind. Like I knew who killed Laura Palmer, the some real weirdness that we're going to get into during this series has always stuck with me. And then finally, like when Netflix came around and they had them on disc, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go back and finish that Twin Peaks that I never got to finish that has stuck with me since I was a kid. And I, you know, got all the disc and sat down and watched the whole show. And yeah, so I've seen all this, but I don't have those young experiences because my parents censored it from me. They, <laughs> they wanted to watch Cheers or whatever else was on those nights. Yeah, that is what was on. I mean, they put it on against a hard night eventually, but it premiered on a Sunday and ABC did its best to try and make it a big event. I mean, it came with a lot of critical hype. A lot of people saying, you know, it was the cover of Entertainment Weekly that it was going to change the face of television and you've never seen anything like it. 36 million viewers. That is not a small number. That is bigger than Big Bang Theory or Sunday Night Football or any network gets. These days, 36 million people tuned in to see what all the fuss was about. And even over abroad, when it premiered in England, I think it's still one of BBC's largest audiences ever. People were excited, or at least curious, about this. I guess it is Lynch at his most mainstream. I mean, maybe Elephant Man or Straight Story are a little more accessible. But if you want the true Lynch, the weird Lynch, this is where you really ought to start. Yeah, I'll say this is him at his pop cultural height. Like, yeah, maybe Elephant Man's more mainstream, but if you say David Lynch to the normal person, who killed Laura Palmer? That's what's going to come to mind. Yeah. 
I agree. And uh, yeah, the weirdness of the show, it was the fact that we all got weird. The mainstream went weird. I blame Seattle. Like all of a sudden, everything <laughs> was, we had gone from new kids on the block on the radio and yeah, cheers on television to yeah, grunge rock and this weird soap opera about the Pacific Northwest where backwards talking midgets and dead girls all like talk nonsense. I mean, for just a little bit, it was cool to be weird. And then I guess the next Batman movie came out and everyone got over it. But for that <laughs> transition from the 80s into the 90s, for those 18 months, Lynch really caught a wave. And this is taking me back. I am right now living a life that I don't know that I've lived since 1990. I'm listening to the Twin Peaks soundtracks. I'm reading the Diary of Laura Palmer, because Stuart, you and I are going to be reviewing all the Twin Peaks books on our other sister podcast, Books and Nachos, and reading that diary, which I haven't read since the summer of 1990, and listening to that music and watching these shows, and then I just randomly put on Faith No More, and I think I was subconsciously being driven to listen to all the music I listened to back in 1990, and I started having weird flashes of, like, my adolescent, unstable mental state and things. I've, I'm uh -oh. going a little bit weird here. Uh-oh, that's bad news, guys. Just so you know, if Arnie is regressing <laughs> to who he was in high school, uh, we're all in danger. <laughs> Break out the cybersex shirt. <laughs> <laughs> that was... 1990, yes, indeed, 91. <laughs> but I got thinking about this. Twin Peaks, is this the show I've seen the most? And I really think it is because I watched it all, like I said, that summer and then season two I watched. Summer of 92, I graduated from high school, was going to college, had a bad breakup. Again, nobody had heard the term binge watching. So I was just known as a freak when I decided to hole up in my basement and watch this entire series without sleeping. Oh, so you went back after it had aired. Yes, I watched it all because I also taped every episode. I had them all. I even, I believe, had bought the VHS. They only sold the episodes. They couldn't sell the pilot. So I had like the VHS box set of season one and I taped all of season two and I watched those all in just, I did not sleep. I did not leave the room. I binge watched slash went through a depressive episode. Then I watched it again, summer of 94. I was living in Kentucky and Bravo had this awesome 10 a.m. television thing of TV too good for TV. They canceled too soon series and they had Max Headroom on there, and I rewatched that. And then they showed all of Twin Peaks, an episode a day, with brand new introductions by the Log Lady. Okay, I've seen those. They put those on the DVDs I saw from Netflix. Yeah, you, you could either just go into the episode, or you could have the Log Lady babble some nonsense before each one. I did a rewatch also again in 99. And then I revisited this series a few years ago, never thinking it would come back, but it happened to just be Twin Peaks' 20th anniversary, and my wife Marjorie had never seen an episode. And I'm like, I don't know if you're going to like it or not. It's been a long time, and television has changed since Twin Peaks. It was groundbreaking for the time. Let's try it. We broke it out. She was engrossed for the first season and a half. And then we finally finished watching it around 2012 because it was like, do you want to watch another episode <laughs> of Twin Peaks? No, not really. <laughs> Me either. So we're going to have to get through that. The nice thing about now peaking is at least I'm guaranteed I got to 
review seven episodes a week so when i hit the doldrums i'm not going to be able to skid for two years you know i think my fandom was cured pretty quickly when the movie came out by 92 when they did the spinoff do people remember the show by the time that film came out uh they did and there i was just as excited about it but i was in college it was a different era and uh, i'll tell that story when we get there but i don't mind spoiling the fact that i didn't like it and that it really did sort of cool my appetite for watching Twin Peaks. I don't think I'd watched the show again until just a few years ago. USC, the college campus, started hosting Twin Peaks nights where cast members would come and screen the episodes in chronological order. And I did go to, saw the final two episodes, which had Kyle MacLachlan there, Julie Cruz, and Jerry Horn was there as well. How'd they ever get them? <laughs> well, you know, everyone came back eventually. I mean, I think everyone that participated appeared one night or another. There's a lot of love for this show. I do feel like anyone that ever appeared in it has some affinity. Maybe Laura Flynn Boyle is maybe <laughs> the only one that has distanced herself from the show. But just about everyone else, I think at this point, is proud to have participated in this strange and, yeah, I would argue, very groundbreaking series. So I've really seen this more than you, because I would have thought for sure you watched it. Well, I did buy the set. I mean, I did when it came out on DVD the first time I bought that. I saw that it had those. But, you know, a lot of times when you buy DVDs, you're, it's, a, it's a statue, right? You're putting it up to show people you like something. You don't necessarily break it out and watch it. I don't think I watched it. But watching this, I've actually visited these locations. We watched it and we had our 10th wedding anniversary in 2012. We still hadn't finished the series, but we had seen all these shots of the Great Northern. We spent our 10th wedding anniversary at the hotel at Suquamish Falls. That is the Great Northern's exterior. We went to the Double Art Diner. We had some cherry pie. I took some photos of the highway where the Welcome to Twin Peaks sign is in this. I've toured these locations, so it has impacted me. But I, yet, I still think Stuart may be the larger fan. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, I certainly was the first one to come to it, and I'm glad to know that I didn't, like, force your hand and make you watch something you didn't enjoy. You did take to it as well, but it has a distant place in my heart, and yeah, the fact that Marjorie didn't want to watch it after they resolved the Who Killed Laura Palmer main hook is not a surprise. I think that the ratings reflected that. That's why it got canceled. Yeah, she's the average American. Yeah, she was actually losing interest beforehand, much like the audience itself. And But I was able to keep saying, we're four episodes from the reveal. We're three episodes from the reveal. After the reveal, it just became like trying to run through molasses. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it went from 36 million people watching at its premiere to when it finally ended in the season finale, June 1991, 6 million viewers. And yeah, that gets you a cancellation. And when the movie came out the next year, it only made 4 million at the box office. It was dead. So that begs the question... Why is it coming back? Why did Showtime dump a rumored 200 million, the biggest budget Lynch will ever have in his life, to revive this old show? I mean, I do feel like this is a Generation X thing, and Generation X is now moving into boomer territory. We got money, we're getting older, it's time to market things to us. I do feel like it is Twin Peaks time to get those 
Xers who are nostalgic for it. And not just that, but right now, I dare not say creativity is dead, but God knows there's a lot of recycling going on on television. I mean, what are some of the biggest hit shows? Fargo, based on a 20-year-old movie, and From Dusk Till Dawn, based on a 20-year-old movie. Mm, and That's not a popular show, but yes, it is a <laughs> show that came back. Bates Motel, based on a 50-year-old movie, and they're also doing television. God forbid I bring up Girl Meets World or Fuller House, both of which I've watched a couple episodes of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you could also bring up X-Files or Dallas. Those came back too. Hell, 90210 had a series that went several seasons, and I guess Melrose Place had a reboot too. Oof. When are we getting our Say by the Bell reboot then? That's what I'm waiting for. <laughs> oh, I sniff it. It's coming. I know that those producers are just probably painting the max right now. The geriatric years. I think as soon as Screech gets out of jail, right? I mean, yeah. There's some problems with that one. Not that there isn't some checkered history with this cast. This is an enormous cast. I want to put it out there just for this pilot that we're covering. It's over 25 major roles. We cannot, in one podcast, give everyone their due here. I'm so glad that we have all these other episodes to cover the whole series. My thinking is that we'll just take it one at a time. I'm going to pick a cast member. We'll talk about that one in great detail, and uh, that'll be how we cover this enormity. But yeah, it's overwhelming to think that this many people were on a show. And I also think that was why the show got canceled. A lot of the people wanted to leave. They had themselves written out because, yeah, they were on a hit show and it was all cool and all, but their time on screen was minimized. Because the cast was so big, they didn't get a lot of time to shine. And I think a lot of people got jaded in that second season and felt like the focus wasn't enough on them and their character. Well, I can't wait to get there. There's other stories I will certainly tell, but... We'll do it episode by episode. The introduction to Twin Peaks, all the rewatching, though, that's what I think of. I also have to ask, though, <laughs> is this series' success responsible for Warren's cherry pie? Because I just, those two came out, like, Warren was right on the heels. <laughs> I gotta think that they were watching some Twin Peaks. I think it was a little earlier, maybe not, but my sense is that it was a little earlier, and I, I really hope Lynch doesn't have any ties to Warrant. That'd make me sad. <laughs> no, I'm thinking Warrant was inspired by Lynch. I think they were inspired by a couple one-night stands, is probably what <laughs> they were inspired by, but it's a suggestive term that I think is applicable both to that song and... Yeah, to this show. When they're talking about loving cherry pie, I'm not sure they're talking about pastry. Well, I know that Janie Lane said he wrote those lyrics in like five minutes on a napkin, and this song came out in September of 90. I thought maybe he saw the pilot. <laughs> You'll have to ask him. <laughs> he might be working at the double R these days, so I probably could. But how did we get here? How did ABC decide that this was something that audiences were ready for? If indeed this was groundbreaking and nothing had been like it on TV before. Fortunately, there's a lot of bonus features that explain all of that on the myriad of home releases they've done. And it's a convoluted story. I think a lot of it can be attributed, though, to the person who does not, in my mind, get enough credit for this series. When I watch these bonus features, everybody's lynch, 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 lynch. To build up to it, we lynch, 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 lynch through all the movies. And poor Mark Frost. In one bonus feature, Lynch says Mark Frost was 50%, if not more, of the series. But when you interview the actors, none of them are like, oh, that Mark, he was just such an inspiration. <laughs> 
And he was the writer of both Fantastic Four films, and I'm talking about the better ones. Mm, there are no good Fantastic Four films, but he was nominated for Emmys for working on Hill Street Blues, The Equalizer, Six Million Dollar Man. He was a successful television writer who I agree is probably the man that helped channel Lynch's eccentricities into something that millions of people would be able to watch. If Lynch had made it on his own, it probably would have been just too weird. But I think Mark Frost helped shape the story and and had been used to dealing with large cast on Hill Street Blues. He was the one that really helped give the framework to this. And I agree. I was a fan of him at the time for The Believers. I had never seen Hill Street Blues or any of his shows, but I love that Martin Sheen Santeria child sacrifice movie that he had done the screenplay for. You guys ever see that one? No, it has been on my to watch list for literally 20 some years, but I never saw it. I did watch some Hill Street Blues and I don't think that show has the legs it deserves, but it was the NYPD blue of the 80s. I mean, that was some groundbreaking television. It certainly is talked about in that way. And, uh, you know, having not watched it, I can't comment. I feel you have a different opinion. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, it's just NYPD blue and ER are still in syndication, whereas Hill Street Blues and St. Elsewhere, those were those shows in the 80s and as big and as boundary pushing, they just aren't in reruns as much for whatever reason. You know, it was Frost who came up with the idea of taking a beautiful, complicated blonde woman and looking at the reasons why she ended up dead under mysterious circumstances. He was the one that had that concept, but the story he wanted to tell, the girl he was talking about wasn't Laura Palmer. It was Marilyn Monroe. What brought them together in 1986 was that there was a nonfiction bestseller that everyone was snapping up called Goddess. That was a sudsy look. It was by the author Anthony Summers. It really took a look at why Marilyn Monroe died. Was she killed? For what reasons? I think it actually went so far as to accuse Robert Kennedy of hatching the murder plot against her and making it look like a suicide. And Frost wanted to write it, and he saw Blue Velvet and wanted Lynch to be the one to direct it. And Lynch liked the story. He liked the concept, but he wasn't eager to have to follow a true story again after Elephant Man. He wasn't interested in doing something in which there would be a lot of people to contradict anything that he took artistic license with. But that is what brought them together. A beautiful blonde woman who died mysteriously and the nation became obsessed. But Lynch decided actually what he wanted to write with Mark Frost, the first thing they actually completed was a script called One Saliva Bubble, which almost happened. It came this close to being a encore to Three Amigos with Steve Martin and Martin Short in a body-swapping farce. The title refers to the fact that a dumb security guard spits into a computer accidentally, and it creates basically, for lack of a better way of explaining it, an electrical frying of a small town, and everyone gets mixed up. A genius becomes the town idiot, and a jazz player becomes a female executive. You know, there was a lot of body-swapping comedies in the 80s around that time, I think about. I just can't get past Three Amigos without Chevy Chase. I'm stuck there. (laughs) Well, maybe they would have gotten him too, but Steve Martin and Martin Short were signed up. It was going to happen. And I can't imagine Lynch doing a farce, a comedy. 
mean, I know he has his sense of humor, but I don't think he's ever made a full-on comedy with a capital C that I with Steve Martin and Martin Short. That just blows my mind. But the problem was was that they sold that script to Dino De Laurentiis, and around '88. Uh, Dino went bankrupt, and all of the projects that Lynch had been developing with him got sold off. I mean, Ronnie Rocket was another one. We know how bad Lynch had wanted to make that, and uh, he couldn't because it got sold to Caracol Pictures, which made big, expensive action movies with Schwarzenegger and Stallone, and surprise, surprise, Arnold did not want to do a David Lynch film. So uh, Lynch was basically saw a lot of his efforts both with Mark Frost and on his own, just get taken away from him in that bankruptcy deal. And really, the only thing he directed for the four years between Blue Velvet and this Twin Peaks pilot were commercials, Calvin Klein perfume ads. And he also made this really weird little short for French television called The Cowboy and the Frenchman. You can YouTube this if you're curious. It is essentially, it was a TV show about how other people perceive the French. They would take famous directors. It was an anthology. Each episode was a different director painting a portrait of how people see the French. And Lynch, of course, went with farce. It involved literally a man in a beret carrying a suitcase full of escargot and cheese and wine stumbling up to a dude ranch full of all these dumb cowboys, including a deaf Harry Dean Stanton. And he got a lot of gags involving the Frenchman saying something in French and Stanton not thinking he could understand him because he wasn't talking loud enough. And in fact, he just couldn't understand the language. It's mildly funny, but if you're looking for the follow-up to Blue Velvet, this ain't it. And I do think that Lynch was ready to make anything by the time he started pitching television. And Twin Peaks was not their first pitch. Believe it or not, if NBC had played their cards right, we would be talking about the Lumerians instead right now, which is about a high-tech submarine that accidentally discovers the lost alien civilization. I think it was like Atlantis, but they were Lumerians and they had all of this black oil or something like that. And it started infecting humanity. And each week they would stop a plot, you know, stop the Lumerians from taking over a society at large. It sounds a lot like a show NBC would eventually make called Sequest, ESV, yeah. yeah, with Roy Scheider. I watched Sequest. I certainly wouldn't want to podcast every episode of it, but it was entertaining. <laughs> yeah, I think that if you, if you like that show, you can give a little bit of credit to Lynch. That was him and Mark Frost, but that sounds really outside of the wheelhouse of David Lynch, and I think his agent felt the same. He kept saying, why don't you do Blue Velvet? Just do Blue Velvet for TV, and he really pushed the idea of soap operas on him. He had him watch the original soap opera, Peyton Place, and he really just said, you can do what you did, just do less of it from Blue Velvet, but do that on TV. And the funny thing is Lynch liked soaps. He actually was addicted to another world in Edge of Night in the late 60s when he was living in Philadelphia and all of that weirdness and you know depravity and, and that poverty while he was an art student some of his happiest memories were to turn on the TV and watch this silly show because it 
took his mind away from how awful everything was around him. And so I think the idea really struck with him. And they were really thinking, okay, well, how do we make this work? And soaps were still a thing. I don't know. Do you guys, did you guys ever watch the big ones? Dynasty, Falcon Crest? Oh, I, I couldn't stand soaps. Like that, that was the worst television I could think of having to watch a soap. Maybe it's because my grandmother was addicted to daytime soaps, especially. So when everyone went to their house, she had taped everything that played at the same time and she'd just have them going. It seemed almost like 24-7. It Maybe it was very Lynchian. I don't know. Mm. But yeah, th- there was something about soaps that I was never able to get into. You talked about those 80s soaps. And no, I mean, I was like eight when those shows were big. So no, I was not watching them. When I got a little bit older, I know so many people who went to college around the time I did. And Days of Our Lives was like a national campus obsession. I think it's because in 92, 93, they were stealing from Twin Peaks and Milena was being possessed by Satan and there was a mysterious woman in white who may or may not have killed people. It went dark. I mean, they had an exorcism. There was that soap Santa Barbara that I really felt was like the daytime version of Twin Peaks. (laughs) Yeah, and I did get into... Some nighttime dramas. Would you call them soap operas? I mean, I think I've mentioned on Now Playing a few times I used to write for a blog called Melrose Space, where (laughs) I would do approximately 5,000 word plot summaries of Melrose Place. (laughs) Hmm. Just plot summaries, wow. Yeah. So the answer is you did like it, but in the different era. When what soaps became in the 90s, which seemed to be more teenage-based... That was when you got hooked into it, yeah. but not the big family, you know, Dynasty, Dallas, Knott's Landing. No, no. It's never been my number one genre either. And Fox, which did do 90210, they weren't even a real player. At this point, ABC was considered to be in last place. Fox was some little thing that had been out for two years and probably wasn't going to make it to the next decade. And they were trying to change their image. I mean, they were known mostly for shows that I bet both of you watched religiously. I know I did. The family half-hour sitcoms. Who's the boss? Growing Pains. Oh, yeah. Perfect Strangers. Mr. Belvedere. You know, they had just started Wonder Years. But by and large, they were known as a sitcom place. And they wanted to be cooler. They wanted to have more cachet. And they didn't think that this guy that directed Blue Velvet was going to make a hit. But they thought he would bring a respectability and an edginess to the network that would bring a new demographic. And so that was what they were thinking when they said okay, why don't you write a script? And they'd been trying that again. I already mentioned Max Headroom. That was an ABC boundary-pushing show. Moonlighting came on at the same time, which for a while was a very buzzworthy show. 30-something, China Beach. Yeah, I liked ABC more. I was a TV addict by 1987. I didn't watch any of the early 80s television programming, but all of the late 80s I watched religiously, and ABC was my favorite for exactly that reason. They weren't all good, but they were all unique, and I felt like CBS was stodgy, the old person network, and Fox was just a little too trashy. NBC was like the popular kids. No, ABC was my network. But yeah, they got the green light. ABC was ready for David Lynch, even if America wasn't. And so what they pitched was a small town murder mystery set in North Dakota. That was where they were going to put Twin Peaks. 
And uh, they probably would have left it there, except when they went out scouting, David Lynch realized there's no trees in North Dakota. And his whole concept <laughs> No been, Douglas firs. Yeah, yeah. His whole concept... Keep in mind, he grew up with a dad that worked for the Department of Agriculture. He spent all his childhood in the forest. That was key to the idea. I mean, you saw it in Blue Velvet, too. All those big trees in the small town. Robin's perching there he wanted to keep that vibe going so they did eventually move it to the pacific northwest but originally it was entitled northwest passage to north dakota that was what they eventually got the green light for and they were given four million dollars in five weeks in basically the the time frame of the show february march 1989 was when they actually filmed the pilot, not knowing that they'd be picked up, and in fact thinking this was a one-off, and I don't think anybody that signed on thought that they were actually going to have to commit to a TV series down the line, which is why they got some of the bigger names that they got. And $4 million is a freaking huge budget for this, and there are two versions of this. Part of the deal was Lynch had to make a European version that could be distributed as a movie, I guess in 1990, Americans were still following the practice that we did in the 70s with all those CBS superheroes of taking our TV two-hour series and putting them there on screens. <laughs> now, I've always wondered what the differences were besides the ending. And so for this review, I actually brought them both into video editing software and did a frame-by-frame -frame comparison programmatically. These two things are identical except for literally one frame was cut out of the TV version that just made everything a little bit blurry when I was doing the comparison up until what is the last scene in the TV pilot version of Sarah Palmer, Laura Palmer's mother, having a dream. That's where the differences start and end. So if you're wondering, does this international version have extended scenes earlier on? Does it have different language? Does it have any of this? No, it is literally the TV pilot with a new ending. Yeah, and this was done mostly because they got completion funds by foreign investors, and they wanted to be like, hey, we still want to air a David Lynch movie, even if it doesn't become a David Lynch TV series. So yeah, they shot an ending that we're going to talk about today that they never expected anybody outside of a few markets in Europe to actually see. But it did end up really influencing the entire direction of the show. It's kind of amazing. And it's, it's very Lynch how something he did spontaneously off the cuff became so central to the whole concept once they got going on it. I think it's worth answering one question that I had so often in 1990. And Stuart, you and I debated this so much, but I have heard definitively Lynch was making it up as he went along. He did not have this whole thing envisioned from the beginning. At a certain point, pretty early on, they did know who the killer was, but so much of this was just, hey, I have an idea that came from the last idea I had, so there was no grand plan for Twin Peaks other than eminently watchable television and the one thing he did know who the killer was, he never wanted to reveal. And I would argue, I think that that was malleable. They had an idea of who they thought it could be, but I think that if they had been able to make the show that they had given gotten the green light for, it might have changed. 
Their concept was that people come in asking who killed her, but they never find out. And that what we realize is that each week we get more and more invested in all the other going-ons. That Laura Palmer is just a conduit for all of this depravity going on in a seemingly normal, all-American, wholesome place. And I don't think that they would have ever solved it up until the last episode of the show. That was certainly the pitch that they made. And I don't think that would fly in today's business. From what I understand, when you sell a show to any network, be it cable or, you know, one of the big three, I think that what you're, what you have to do, my understanding is you have to have outlined the first three seasons. They don't want to buy something and not think that you know what you want to do with it two, three years down the line. They want to know that you know that you're not lynching it, basically. That you're not going to make it up as you go along. That there is a, a scope and a plan to this. This must have been put into place after J.J. Abrams and Lost then. Yeah, because <laughs> Lost was making it up as they went along till season three, where they're like, okay, we need to figure this out. We're going to go in the writer's room, hash it all out, and then start going. And wasn't that ABC as well? Yes, it was. But Twin Peaks did change television. Thanks to Twin Peaks, we got X-Files, we got Picket Fences, and I think this showed that big-budget adult fare could work on television. This is the predecessor of Game of Thrones and Sopranos and all those HBO shows. It's the predecessor of Lost and these kind of tight-woven mystery shows. Twin Peaks was the first show to really do this and be a series, not a miniseries. Yeah, basically, they were afraid that TV audiences weren't smart enough. I mean, there was talk about not running commercials when they premiered the two-hour movie because they thought people just needed all the help that they could get in order to follow all of these storylines. And that, you know, keep in mind, no DVR. And not everyone knew how to program their VHS recorders. Some people weren't home to watch TV. And so... You miss an episode, the feeling is people will be totally lost. They just won't be able to stay with something like this. And that was TV back in 1989, 1990. I do think Lynch was the first person to say, you know what? If they care enough, they'll follow it. And now, of course, we have much more intricate shows. And, and it really is the model for addictive binge-watching TV. I hope everyone is going to be able to join us for the entire run of Now Peaking, because I'm going to have a whole lot of fun going episode by episode. But this one, I got to say, this it won't get any better than this episode we're covering today. If you don't like this movie that we're going to talk about, you know, maybe this show isn't for you. I'm, I'm going to disagree. I think there's one episode better than this. Yeah, I... I We'll get into it, but uh, yeah, I do feel like I like episodes more than this pilot. Wow. Okay. Well, then I speak only for myself, but I do feel like we are really entering, yeah, one of my favorite two hours ever produced and arguably a more satisfying movie, even though it's open-ended, than Blue Velvet. Arnie, why don't you tell them a plot? We're not going to do that for every episode, but uh, for this one just to get us started and in the mood. Tell us what happens in Twin Peaks. Let me literally take a sip of coffee and I'll get started. Twin Peaks is a small town in Washington, just a few miles south of the Canadian border and 12 miles west of Idaho. It's a quiet town, housing just over 50,000 people, and they're the good kind of people you find in any small town. People like Shelley Johnson, the waitress at the Double R Diner, married to truck driving Leo. 
Although Leo is also a drug dealer and a wife beater, and Shelly is cheating on him with Bobby, the high school football player, but publicly Bobby is dating the homecoming queen Laura Palmer, but Laura is secretly in love with biker James Hurley, and the only one who knows of that secret romance is Laura's best friend Donna, who's dating Bobby's best friend Mike. And none of those people know Laura is secretly seeing the town psychiatrist, Hawaii-obsessed Dr. Jacoby. Now, James is the nephew of Ed Hurley, who owns the local car repair shop, so another nice small-town guy. And he's married to one-eyed Nadine, who's obsessed with curtain rods. But Ed's also cheating on Nadine with Norma Jennings, who's the owner of the Double R Diner. Norma's also married, but her husband's in jail. But there's also good people like Pete Martell, foreman at the sawmill. He's married to Catherine Martell, who runs the mill. But Catherine is cheating on Pete with Ben Horn, owner of the Great Northern Hotel and Horn's department store where Laura Palmer works. Laura's father, Leland, happens to be Ben's lawyer. And Catherine and Ben are conspiring to steal the mill away from Josie Packard, Catherine's sister-in-law who inherited the mill from her late husband. Ben hopes to build a lodge on the land. But it's small-town America. All these little dramas occur behind closed doors and, in Nadine's case, closed curtains. But the delicate balance is disrupted when, out for fishing one morning, Pete Martell finds 17-year-old Laura Palmer's body on the beach, wrapped in plastic, and quite dead. Sheriff Harry Truman, played by Michael Onkeen, is called out to investigate along with his crybaby deputy, Andy Brennan. But later that morning, Ronette Pulaski, another local girl who went to Laura's high school, walks across the state line beaten, having been raped several times. As this seems to be related to the Palmer murder, and Ronette did cross a state line, Truman calls in the FBI, who arrives in the form of Agent Dale Cooper, played by Kyle McLaughlin. Cooper is a highly caffeinated, quirky sort, but he's a good detective who soon uncovers many of the town's secret relationships, including Truman's private affair with Josie Packard. Basically, everybody's screwing everybody. Underneath Laura Palmer's fingernail, Cooper finds a piece of paper with the letter R, and that clues him in that this murder's tied to another that happened in Washington State a year ago of young Teresa Banks. They find Laura's murder location in a local train car, and in that car is a mound of dirt with a necklace with half a heart on it, and at the base of that mound is a piece of paper where, written in blood, are the words, Fire, walk with me. They also find the key to Laura's safety deposit box, in which is $10,000 in cash and a copy of Flesh World magazine. And inside that magazine is an escort ad featuring Ronette. The murder sends the town into a panic. Leland and his wife Sarah are, of course, broken up over the death of their only daughter. And Donna sneaks out of her house that night to meet with James at the local roadhouse. But she's followed by Bobby and Mike. When Mike gets rough with her, a bunch of bikers step in and a major brawl breaks out. But one biker sneaks Donna out to meet with James. It turns out James has the other half of the necklace, but the two agree to bury it to keep his secret with Laura. But Sarah Palmer, at home and half asleep, has a psychic vision of a gloved hand digging the locket back up and taking it as credits roll. In the TV version, in the European version, Sarah Palmer, half asleep, suddenly remembers, hey, I saw Laura's killer. <laughs> he was in the bedroom this morning. <laughs> 
It sounds weird, but I could actually see her forgetting. We're going to see she can she can forget a lot. That woman. <laughs> and they find one armed Mike at the hospital, who's been hunting a killer named Bob, who for some reason is in the hospital's basement, where Truman and Cooper find him and shoot and kill him, avenging Laura's death. As credits roll, <laughs> it's to a dancing little person who speaks backwards to Agent Cooper in old age makeup. <laughs> wow, they even it's got that in there. weird. <laughs> no, they didn't get that in there. That's where it came from. But yeah, we'll get there. It's, it is incredibly truncated, abbreviated. A show that, as you pointed out, has hundreds of interconnections suddenly being like, oh, we're done. It's over. <laughs> it was, it's like a slap in the face. Yeah, that... I mean, Bob doesn't even start with a J. <laughs> like, what about all those clues they're going to give us? Uh, they'll answer some and uh, what they can answer. But I will just put it this way. This won't be the last time that David Lynch will be told this situation and be stuck with having to turn a TV pilot with multiple story strands into a self-contained story. We're going to see that in Mulholland Drive. And many people I know consider that his best film. Yeah, it is really curious, though, to try to watch this and think of the European version as a self-contained movie. If we were reviewing this on Now Playing as a movie, we would be railing. Why is this character given so much time? What does Norma have to do with anything? Why is Ed and Dean in this film? Like, why Why is anyone in this film? <laughs> yeah, certainly, I think it works in the way that Lynch wants you to, that we ultimately, we never forget that we're asking who killed Laura Palmer. It always remains a murder mystery throughout, but we realize there's so much more here that we want to explore. There's so many mysteries. It isn't a one mystery show. It's everyone has a secret. But you know, you talked about that tradition of soap operas, and I remember watching this again really for the first time 10 years ago where I really got those discs and just watched episode after episode. This opening theme. Oh yes, Angelo Badalamenti. We talked about him with Blue Velvet, and yeah, again, watching it like a movie, it certainly has TV-style opening credits, but this haunting yes. music, oh man, this is probably what sucked me into the show immediately, was this score, and before I ever saw the episodes, I owned the CD, because it's just, this is the kind of music that gets under my skin. Every note he wrote for this series, I love. And I do love this opening theme, like that bass, and then it kind of springs out into a full orchestra but something about it tells me soap opera and i always wondered that like when i was watching this on my own like is this a parody of a soap opera because this music is so dramatic or even melodramatic when you get into laura's theme and those dark synths that are playing and then again that will kind of break out like this opening theme and then go back to those synths it does have that feel like i think it's great music but it does give it that feel of a soap opera to me, of a melodrama. I think it's uplifting music in that when you see these scenes of Washington State, and again, having been there, it is so beautiful. It rains all the time or is cloudy all the time, but it's still gorgeous with the mountains and the trees. And when you see this, it's like postcards, and this music lulls you into a sense of dreaminess. Like, just look at how beautiful and peaceful everything is, and that music says that, but yet there is that bass underneath that just gives you the hint of disquiet. I view this as the musical version of the bugs in the grass in Blue Velvet. 
Yeah, this is the character I want to talk about for this podcast. Each podcast, I want to look at, uh, really dig deep. To me, it's the first character we meet. Angelo Badalamenti and then later Julie Cruz are just as much a part of this world as anybody else. And I do think that you're right. It straddles the balance between being a soap opera. It would probably feel like a soap opera theme if it was played by a full orchestra. It is the synthesizer that gives it the ominous quality. And it really was catching a wave when that kind of music, I call it shoegazer music, the Cocteau Twins, all the heavy reverb, the My Bloody Valentine. There were many bands that were experimenting with these soft, lilting voices contrasted with the synthesizer sound and also jazz, you know, which Battlemente brought in as well. This piece of music was not written as the theme song. It is called Falling and it appears on Julie Cruz's album, that came out the year before as a standalone pop single. So this is just an instrumental version of a song that already pre-existed. So it wasn't conceived as Twin Peaks theme. I listened to Julie Cruz's Into the Night album, Floating Into the Night, I guess it was called, as almost a second soundtrack to this movie. I mean, Several of her songs are on the official soundtrack, but the fact that that CD a year before this was co-written by Battlementi and produced by Lynch, she is the siren of Twin Peaks. That entire album carries the same kind of mood. Uh, her future works with B-52s and Solo does not live up to the promise of this first album. <laughs> she fought being the muse for Lynch and Battlemente. At some point, she wanted to say, I'm more than just your songbird. And yeah, she struck out on her own and yeah, kind of struck out. But <laughs> here, I do feel like, yeah, you're seeing three people really find their voice setting the mood for the story they want to tell here in the opening. I'll talk more about Julie when we get to her scene late into this pilot. But yeah, I just want to salute right here and there, Angelo Badalamente, many of the themes that we're going to hear, including Laura's theme, the next song that we hear, which kind of goes from the, the low hum into the piano crescendo that, that sounds both beautiful and then ominous. It can switch back and forth. That was something that Lynch directed. He would talk about a scene, and Battlemente would be at the piano, and they would just write these things within 30 minutes. A lot of this music was created just thinking about the story they wanted to tell. And I think that it's an incredible contribution. Yeah, and what's interesting, what they do with the music here, you know, again, later on we've talked about it, we'll have someone actually singing words to this theme, which I did not know that that was a song prior to this. I just thought, I'm like, oh, that's interesting. They've taken the theme of this TV show and they've put lyrics to it. But other times, maybe it's Audrey's theme, I think. It's, a, it's this jazzy theme. And, like, there are times where, is that the soundtrack or is that literally the record she's listening to? Like, I think Lynch does some interesting things with the music here where you don't know if that's going on in this world or if that's just the soundtrack. Like, there, there aren't those clear lines throughout. Yeah, he's a master at that in this pilot. I think in some cases it is both. I think that it's the music they listen to. They live in a world with very few pop songs and a whole lot of jazz. And if I had asked you guys before you turn on the television show and watch this, who was the first character to appear? Would you have said Josie? 
<laughs> no, I totally forgot that. I, I didn't even remember her name when I watched it this time. I'm like, really? They opened with her? I would have thought Pete on the beach. I completely forgot about these early scenes with, yeah, Josie Packard, Joan Chen. I don't know why we start with her. Right? She's the Sphinx, right? I mean, how can you even read what she's doing? She's staring in a mirror. The show is called Twin Peaks. We will see this reflection and the idea of a twin of oneself being a very big theme throughout, although they don't know it when they're putting this together, but they're going to run with it. I think she will even recreate this moment later in the show. But uh, yeah, it's a surprise. We just we forget about Josie. She's not one of the 12 most popular characters that, that come to my mind when you say Twin Peaks. But yeah, here she is humming and becomes, I guess, the first of many potential suspects. Maybe the only person we don't suspect, or I didn't suspect, through the entire run is Pete, because he is going to be the one to find her. And his reaction feels incredibly honest in the, his shock and horror. What's interesting to me is that, again, going to that opening theme and those opening credits, it's so slow. We're going to see sawmills and waterfalls. They get to the crux of this TV show very fast. Like, Pete finds a body on the beach. What's interesting to me is what he says when he finds it. She's dead, wrapped in plastic. Now, maybe I'm reading too much into that, but the, the fact that they're not going to know it's Laura till later on, it almost feels like, oh, this it was expected that she was going to end up this way at some point. They do that so many times in this beginning here, where people just sense, before they are told, they sense that something bad has befallen their homecoming queen. And she's a celebrity, right? I mean, she's everywhere. There's no one in this town whose lives she has not touched. And supposedly in a, in a good way. And yet everyone's first reaction is, oh, something bad. Yeah, and we're introduced to this through Lynch's constant partner here. I mean, we've got Jack Nance, who's worked with Lynch since Eraserhead. And yeah, he is perhaps the single most straightforward character in the entire series. He's mostly comic relief. I usually never suspect any malice or ill will or any really plot threads coming out of him. He's <laughs> like the nice guy. Yeah, he has a wonderful delivery here, though. Just his weird cadence to his words, you know? It makes... Every line he says, memorable. <laughs> it feels very reminiscent of Blue Velvet. In a lot of ways, this feels reminiscent of Blue Velvet. I mean, it's a logging town with a whole bunch of secrets. And later, we'll see a really scary demon guy is at the center of it. But the idea of the ear, right? That you find this one piece of the puzzle, and we want to see what Laura's body gets attached to, just like we want to see where that ear came from. We're waiting to see all the interconnections about who this girl means to everyone else, because we only know her as a corpse. And that's an interesting way to begin. We do not know her as anything other than dead. There are, as you said, so many people in this series. And yeah, they got Cheryl Lee here, a model actress, just to play the corpse, and she wasn't intended to do anything else, and they just are going to build this whole series around finding out about her, but they have a lot of characters to introduce right up front, because yes, we started with Josie, we got Pete, Pete's wife Catherine, watching as the cops roll up, Andy, Sheriff Truman, and even Dr. Hayward, who is the local obstetrician, general practitioner, mortician. He's literally with you from birth till death. 
<laughs> he wasn't planning on that, and he seems genuinely crushed here. It's Mark Frost's dad, Warren Frost, playing this part. So he got through a little bit of nepotism, but I think he holds his own here. And what I will say about this entire cast, just speaking very generally, is I don't think a lot of them are amazing actors. Or even passable. <laughs> <laughs> but I do feel like almost everyone is expertly utilized. There's a couple that are pet peeves. There's a couple people that I'm desperate to recast. But by and large, I wouldn't change much here. I do feel like even flat actors or strange delivery, it, it's spun in the right way here. And I do feel like, yeah, we, we get a whole lot of different kinds of emotions. We're horrified that this beautiful girl is dead, and yet we're laughing at the cowardly Andy who's crying like he always does. Apparently something happened a year ago in a barn, and he just, the waterworks come. And I got to say, this pilot is filled with tears, including my own. I mean, it is really emotional, the journey that we take from laughter to tragedy, and it just really, for me, it really wells up in my eyes. I get really emotional watching the way that people discover Laura's dead. That never happened to me before, but maybe I was tired, maybe I was emotional, but when I watched this pilot this time, I did well up, a tear did escape my eye. I actually cried for Laura. Maybe unpopular opinion here but as i'm watching it this time like really paying attention to parts that maybe i tune out of if i hadn't had to do this for now peaking is the again that the melodramatic overacting kind of grates on me like i feel like in 1990 this is probably standard all this soap opera stuff that kind of lose i'm like uh this is this is aged not well like this this is of its time what does keep me into this though is yeah laura and what is this mystery with laura like everyone seems to like be devastated by the death of this one girl and yeah we're told she's homecoming queen but i feel like there's a deeper mystery there and that's even when i'm just kind of gritting my teeth during some of the the overacting here like who oh like laura's mom every time she cries i'm like come on it, it's just so melodramatic it's so maudlin at times like oh i love grace Zabriskie in this and, and here's another character that with like this is all she's pretty much going to do as far as yes. i can tell laura is always going to be a corpse and this woman is always going to be shrieking she's shrieking here at the beginning like we know it's going to be bad for her she's calling laura to come down from her bedroom we've already seen that laura is not going to be coming down from that bedroom because she's out on the beach dead but she's already nervous she already has this anxiety about her smoking calling the boyfriend calling the football practice calling her husband and that's what I'm talking about. It, it does seem like Laura is almost this supernatural entity watching this pilot. And that's what's keeping me interested. Like, why is everyone tuned into her? Well, I'll just go ahead and say it. Sorry, mom. But I did grow up with a mother who always presumed the worst. If uh, dad wasn't home at six, it was probably because he had a car accident <laughs> and was dead. And so to me, this really registers as true. I really feel this woman's anxiety and it's the growing dread. I feel like this, the way that this builds, it's masterful in the way that we meet so many characters. And yet I don't get confused about who's who because of the way it's calibrated. We go from Laura Palmer on the beach to Laura Palmer being summoned from her bedroom to finding out that she has this boyfriend who's also missing to finding out that he hasn't been going to football practice Maybe she's with her husband over at the Great Northern. We get our first major subplot 
here as well. Something that's hard to slip in here. You may not notice it, but we're going to learn a lot about the fabled Ghostwood Estates and the Packard Sawmill lands that become really central to a large part of the series. Yeah, that's what all the Norwegians are there for. When we're first introduced to Leland Palmer, we have him with Ben, and they're hosting a whole bunch of Norwegians whose air sacs have never felt so good as when they went running in Washington State, who are there to fund this Ghostwood Estates that they don't have the land for. It is currently the Packard Mill, and Catherine is cooking the books to make it look like it's going to go broke, and Ben is conniving to get the land. Who knows how much Leland the lawyer knows? I mean, there's two ways to go with that if you're the lawyer. You either know everything and you're crooked, or your client's keeping you in the dark. And this could be a reason why we have someone dead there, because this is going to be the undoing for a major deal. We know that Ben Horn is the mogul that seems to own everything in Twin Peaks. And he can, you know, we we can't cry for him that he's not going to be richer here and that the Norwegians will eventually walk away from this deal. But they walk away from it because of the omen, the bad luck of the idea of someone being murdered on the land itself. I mean, that's... I don't know. I, we, we've talked about this in other podcasts. I'd live in a house where someone was murdered if the price were right. I do feel like I maybe I'm not superstitious. But would you go for a feel-good vacation on the beach where, yep, and that's where the body was found? <laughs> yeah, people probably drown at the beach all the time. Uh, you know what? I, my first reaction literally w- would be to talk about the price but uh, and to give a moment <laughs> to figure out what had actually happened. But they get spooked here and... Uh, yeah, what what I don't get is why Ben hasn't sent Audrey off to, like, boarding school. Like, she's obviously this agent of chaos and mischief. Like, she's the one that blows this deal. Oh, I just want to check out the smorgasbord. She goes in and lets the Norwegians know that, oh, yeah, there's a dead girl on the beach, and they're all out of there. Like, again, and I react positively to the humor of this show. Like, this stuff still works, and all the stuff with the Norwegians I'm enjoying. But, yeah, I don't know why you keep Audrey around, especially after she blows this deal for you. Yeah, with the Norwegians, I really love the score there. Never included on an album, but that really upbeat music that plays when Audrey's blowing the deal. And Audrey Horn, oh boy. Sherilyn Fenn. Kind of a Marilyn Monroe figure. I mean, she does have that vampy, gentlemen prefer blondes kind of quality. And many of the women do. It's no mistake that a lot of this feels retro. The The model is that these are high schoolers, maybe in 1989, but they're in the fashion consciousness of 1959. Yeah, which we kind of saw with Blue Velvet, where you, it's part 80s, part 50s. See, I think that if you were a teenage boy watching Twin Peaks, there was one you would pick. You would pick your girl. There would be the Donna guys. There would be the Shelly guys. I was an Audrey guy. The moment she put on those red pumps, I was watching Two Moon Junction. I'm still an Audrey guy. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. Audrey is a big favorite of mine. And she originally, when in the original script, had no lines. They weren't going to make her the agent for chaos that undid this deal. The Norwegians would leave because they just heard the news on the TV. But what a great idea. And again, kind of sets her up as maybe, maybe someone that did it. 
Like, if she's just wacky enough to ruin things for her father, is it out of character for her to go and kill somebody to ruin that deal? It's possible. I mean, it sounds outlandish, but this is Twin Peaks where people do extravagant things for lesser reasons. The thing that came out to me, though, when I was trying to write a plot summary that incorporated more than a dozen characters and trying to tie it to the central plot of Laura is that Audrey is not connected to Laura. They go to the same high school, but they weren't really friends. They didn't hang out. They didn't cheat on each other's boyfriends. Her brother. Yeah, she. Laura did tutor Audrey's developmentally disabled brother, Johnny. But it's so tangential that she at least has the least motive, and she seems to be the one that really is drawing more attention to that subplot. Like, she is a subplot character. I couldn't see her as being the one who killed Laura Palmer because she doesn't seem to have any relationship with Laura Palmer to which wanting to kill. Well, you're presuming a personal reason, like a hatred towards her. But again, if the motive is to ruin my father, Laura could just have been the innocent bystander, the means by which to hurt someone else. And she certainly does enjoy creating mischief. We see that in her scenes. And yeah, there's something about her. Even when she appears in the school later, the, she laughs with Donna. And I always thought that was a mystery. I mean, like, what what do they know? What are they, what's being exchanged in those looks? I think it literally just ends up being the fact that she's smoking on the clock and changing out her goody two-shoes for red pumps. But you don't know what Audrey knows. She seems to be dangerous. Yeah, I get the feeling like she's a rival to Laura, or was a rival since Laura has passed away at this point. And so, would she go out and strangle her and wrap her in plastic? I don't know, but she knows people with names like Snake who have switchblades. Like, I could see her, for whatever reason, because she is so mischievous, we see her blow this multi-million dollar deal, I could see, I don't know, some kind of high school jealousy gone awry that could lead to a murder. Everyone's a suspect in this episode, I'll grant you that. At this point... She's dead. If we're being introduced to characters, I'm assuming there's a reason. And I didn't realize when Stuart was introducing this to me the first time that the goal was to have a soap opera where we get embroiled in these people's lives. I thought these people's lives were the means to an end and not the other way around where the death was the means and these people's lives was Lynch's and Frost's idea of the end. Of course, because you wouldn't sign up for that. No one would sign up for just another soap opera about small-town cheating hearts. That doesn't hook you. That's not cool. You need a murder to unveil that. But think about the way the ear worked. I mean, the way that the ear led Jeffrey into all kinds of debaucherous sex and self-exploration. I I feel like that is what we're being led in to do as well. And, and they do it by having characters that at first are very identifiable. I feel like Sarah Palmer's grief is overwhelming here. I don't mock it. I hurt for her and the way that she has to find out with Leland on the phone and, again, almost psychically, the sheriff takes off his hat and Leland knows my daughter is dead. He does not have to be told. That's when I cried is when he was crying in the sheriff's arm and the mother was screaming on the other end of the phone. That was the moment it got to me. 
and and just the the mastery. I mean, I think Lynch is a sound designer more than even a filmmaker and an image maker. Just the way he uses sound, just the way that they pan down from the phone, it sounds muffled, and then all of a sudden it's shrieking, and we cut to her in in her full anguish, tearing at her hair. I mean, those kinds of loud and quiet dynamics played throughout this pilot and just masterfully i just a master filmmaker at work here this is something that does not get done in your average tv episode and indeed lynch wouldn't know how to make an average tv episode he was filming this like one of his movies no who would think to put a one-eyed woman nadine who wants to put up drapes into this pilot like her and ed you know talk about this cast of characters i'm still not sure what part they play and i think i remember what happens to nadine later on but yeah these ones are a mystery to me like that we'll see ed a little bit later and of course he's another cheating guy in this small town but yeah just weird characters all over the place there's something in this water that appears to make everybody cheat i think you needed a laugh and i do feel like you need to have release that it would be too much if everyone is crying and a lot of people are crying we start with andy we then go to sarah palmer and then you know we eventually get back to that high school where again before the principal has gotten out there to announce laura is dead donna is looking at that empty seat in homeroom and just losing it there looking at james with this knowing look we see them exchange at the locker something about a picnic we'll later see a video with them at a picnic with laura well we'll see donna at the picnic we don't see james well i always saw this high school scene as a bit overwrought i'm right there with you (laughs) i don't know what it was about my high school life but every single year of my high school one of the students in my class died, and everybody was like, oh, well, that kind of sucks. And we'd have, like, two close friends crying. We never had some girl shrieking and running across the yard. No, of course, but this is not reality. And I, if you're not going along with the melodrama, I don't think you're getting into the right vibe. of the. I mean, that is what they want it to be. The overwrought is a big part of the flavoring. I mean, that's a healthy dose in this. That's not something Lynch wants to shy away from. I love it. Melodrama is what you want in a soap opera. I mean, it is an opera after all. And there's a reason I don't really watch soaps. Yeah, I mean, I get what he's going for. I'm just saying younger audiences, you know, I maybe because I didn't watch soap operas and the stuff I watch today, you know, I do watch Fargo or Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul or Mr. Robot. Like, you don't have the soap opera stuff. That's not the stuff that interests me, all the interconnected relationships. I want to know what the plot is. And so, yeah, I'm going with this because I'm into... Who killed Laura Palmer? What does she mean to the city? Like, that stuff is working. It's just, yeah, when you got people running across campus screaming, I'm laughing. I'm not feeling sad about Laura. Lynch said that when they screened it, inevitably there would be people laughing. So I don't think you're alone, Jacob. But I, to me, it's incredibly powerful. Moving more surprisingly, like I never expected television to get me, and so quickly, with people I barely gotten to know. And it's mostly with the way that it's been put together. And on my first couple watchings here, this didn't do a whole lot for me. These were the scenes that I had to get through to get to the good stuff. It was only like watchings three, four, and five after I'm really intimately familiar with these characters and the stories they will tell that I get into it. But for me... I'm not really jiving with this high school stuff. I want to know about the adults. I want to know about the murder. I want to know about the cops and the investigation. Seeing these people in high school, now we're doing 
a bunch of Lynch reviews. I get this is his style, but this wasn't clicking for me as a TV viewer in 90. I think we have a suspect, though. I mean, after the commercial break, it ends with Sarah Palmer screaming and comes back. We're at the Double R Diner. We now know where Bobby was. The boyfriend that wasn't at football practice, that was, you know, with Laura the previous evening, he is at the Double R Diner. And yeah, we get the discovery that he was cheating on her, that there is a waitress named Shelly that he just casually happens to mention that he could take her back home so that he could screw her. Not that casually. Norma's on to them. Yep. (laughs) Yeah, I don't get Shelly's age like is she a high school dropout she's certainly hanging around a lot of high schoolers it's hard to get everyone's age because all these actors are like 25 26 27 and they're supposed to be playing high school actually machin amik was only 19 when filming this 18 19 all right most of them were much older yes indeed but yeah she was like six years younger than bobby but she doesn't seem to go to school she's just a full-time waitress slash abused wife for leo and you want to talk about nepotism and bad acting there's leo yeah that's the one i mean we'll get to him one day but uh he's the son of the casting director oh i didn't realize that yes well i haven't gone to explore his backstory yet i'll pick an episode (laughs) i think i know the one but uh i'll look at him at one point but yeah you've nailed the one that i would desperately recast and now you've explained why and his hair in this one, too, is really funny with the curls down in the front. He looks like he's trying to be on Teen Beat. Like, he just got fired from 21 Jump Street and showed up in Twin Peaks. He does not look like a trucker. That is what I would most stress here, is that my idea of what a trucker on the road is in 1990 is not this. This is more hair metal. And, yeah, maybe he is in a band. <laughs> maybe he has that side to him. All we really know about him is that he is incredibly angry and violent and that Bobby is scared, that as they're on their way home, they're not freaked out by the police and all that's going on in the town, they're freaked out because his truck is home and he said he was on the road last night. He shouldn't be there. So we get a clue. This is a violent man who was not where he said he would be. And he immediately moves towards the top of the suspects list as well. He was my primary suspect for a long time in this. Why wouldn't he be? Yeah, it's almost too obvious. The reason why you wouldn't suspect him is because he is going to be a leading suspect throughout season one. But in the early one, we don't get a lot with him. We'll see later him accuse Shelley of having two different brands of cigarettes in the ashtray at home. But I also noticed that their house is unfinished and look what's up on the uh, walls there, but plastic. And that's got to be a thought too, is that Laura wrapped in plastic certainly looks like he would have those materials on hand to do that. Things really ramp up for me with the character who, honestly, there's a character I always forget is even in Twin Peaks, even when I rewatch the series. But Ronette Pulaski, I always forget there's a second victim of the guy who killed Laura Palmer walking across those train tracks, dazed and confused in a tattered white outfit. What an image, man. That shot is just remarkable i remember you know firewalk me goes into some dark territory we'll get in some dark territory in twin peaks i didn't realize it got right into it in this pilot like it is not happy stuff what, what's gonna we're gonna find out what happened to run it here in that yeah you're right Stuart. that image of her and that tattered slip and the ropes around her hands and she's like almost a zombie just comatose walking the rails 
Yeah, when she arrives, she's got some damage and isn't really able to speak and lapses into a coma. Well, that's the thing is at first we're like, oh, good. Uh, someone that would have witnessed part of this, we're going to get a lot of answers fast about what might have happened to Laura. But yeah, then they do the soap opera thing, lapsing into a coma. You can't get more daytime soap opera than that. I do feel like this series is very smart in the way that it takes cliches and, and uses them just like any other soap would, but in a way that really is exciting and makes you... I don't laugh at the implausibility of Twin Peaks. I'm hypnotized by it. But her crossing the state line, I don't know, again, since we know he's making it up as he went along, if Ronette Pulaski was supposed to be anything more than a reason to involve the FBI, because FBI is there for federal crimes. If it crosses a state line, all of a sudden you're in the FBI's jurisdiction. So because Ronette happened to slip over to Idaho, the FBI must have had Agent Cooper, like, right there because five hours i mean one thing we've not mentioned yet is every episode of twin peaks by and large is one day in twin peaks so everything that happens here is happening on the day laura's body is found and yes this friday yes that's why we're doing it one day at a time is because this is exactly the day that twin peaks had in 1989 on this friday the 24th and Agent Cooper, played by Kyle McLaughlin, when he comes rolling in, this is where the series jives with me. He's the one I want to be, the fast-talking, coffee-drinking Sherlock Holmes. And I say that because he's, like, way too deductive. He just looks at things and knows it all. Well, yeah, I agree with you, Arnie. When Cooper shows up, like, this is where I get interested and. Kyle McLaughlin, like, look, he was in Dune, we saw him in Blue Velvet, he's, you know, he did fine there, but this seems like a different version of him. He's so bright and sunny, and I like how it's juxtaposed against the darkness of what's going on with Laura's death. I also feel like we got some Lynch in him, I'd rather be here than Philadelphia, we know Lynch hated Philadelphia. Yeah, and the whole character is modeled on Lynch, it's... I mean, at this point, Kyle is an expert. Yeah, he's worked with him in two films, and he just kind of knows him. And and the character is Lynch. I mean, he can be sunny and charmed by the simplest thing, the smell of a Douglas fir or a snowshoe rabbit, and the next minute be talking about grisly details of a horrible crime. And, and that waffling back and forth between sunniness and debauchery is lynch all over yeah and when we're introduced to him talking into that micro cassette recorder talking to diane i went out and bought one like the next day and used it to keep all kinds of notes in god only knows what happened to it i probably have deep personal secrets floating around on micro cassette somewhere in a landfill but it's degraded by now arnie don't worry uh, i always worry but <laughs> Yeah, this is where the show kicks into high gear for me, is about 35 minutes into the pilot, would be reaching about 45 minutes into the show, and we've got our investigators, Agent Cooper and Sheriff Harry S. Truman. I'll be honest, I could have dealt with the show just about all of these characters. I find everyone fascinating, I'm just compelled by the secrets of them. What it is is that Cooper wakes me up. It's a new energy coming in. That That's someone that can really cut through all the red tape and instead of the slow, melodramatic 
yeah, movie that I've been getting, all of a sudden it can feel very differently and we can be in something, yeah, a little bit more conventional. It becomes much more of a traditional detective show once he shows up because he's figuring out a lot of things very, very quickly. I don't think, God bless him, Sheriff Harry S. Truman would be able to get to the bottom of too much here. He is a a man of few words, and I think throughout the show he has always been an honest guy. He's never been on my suspects list for killing Laura Palmer, but I'm not sure that he could have handled this case without Cooper. Well, and Cooper's dealt with this before. He knows when he sees Ronette to go and examine her fingers. He's obviously looking for something. Yeah, and Truman is the opposite of most police procedurals I've seen. I mean, when I watch cop shows back then or movies, when the FBI comes in, hell, go to Die Hard. You know, the FBI comes in, takes over, the cops get rankled. And here, Cooper's expecting that. Truman's like, no, we're just happy to have you here. We're out of our league. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. Yeah, there is no tension between them. And I think that was originally a plan that they were going to do more of that. Maybe not with the sheriff. He was originally named Stedman. I think they were thinking a steady man. They they always envisioned that he would be a calming Western sheriff kind of presence here. But I think that they were going to have more tension between the outside forces and and then that just changed, probably because of the energy of the actors. And they had a lot of time between writing the pilot and shooting the show to really create the chemistry. And uh, Lynch is someone that goes off accidents. And one of the accidents happens here when the autopsy happens. That flickering light was just a malfunctioning generator. That wasn't an artistic intent. That was just something that was going wrong. And rather than wait for them to fix it, Lynch said, no, 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 it's perfect. We'll just shoot it as it is. Yeah, I figured that was just Lynch doing Lynch. Like, of course we'd have a malfunctioning light. Yeah, that's what I took it as, too, is it added mood. But electricity is going to be woven into this later. We will see that flickering lights and and electrical circuitry is going to be part of the mythology. But that is how Lynch works. Something goes wrong, he incorporates it, and then he expands upon it until... It doesn't work anymore. And so... Well, we also saw the bright lights in blue velvet at the beginning and the end. So it's something he had brought in even before this. Well, spot, putting a spotlight on a character surrounded by darkness is, is one visual. Yes, but fading it to white with a big electrical hum like you're being blinded by a street lamp. That's different. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's one artistic take on how to single out characters, but he will actually make electricity and the killer a part of the plot. But we're not going to spoil anything about the future episodes, so you just got to stick with us till the killer is revealed. Right. So what does R mean? Well, it, it means that there's a serial killer. That's what it means. It means that we are seeing someone spelling a message. And yeah, it is hard once you put that in your mind to think that it was Audrey. That Audrey might have killed Laura just to get back at her dad, but she'd never bother to go kill some other girl named Teresa Banks a year ago and put something under her fingernail. So we are having to deal with a serial killer. That That is a genre that was coming into being. I think it helped Twin Peaks 
that, you know, around the same time we would get Silence of the Lambs and that whole explosion of serial killer movies. I think the fact that Lynch was actually offered Red Dragon probably helped influence why this feels so much like a Hannibal Lecter movie without Hannibal Lecter. And if there's one character I forget more than Ronette Pulaski, it's Teresa Banks. I always forget that there's that other one. But watching it this time, I was like, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And the bigger clue that we're going to get, and probably the funniest moment for me in this pilot, you know, they have Laura's diary, but it has a lock on it. I'm like, come on, guys. Like, those locks are so chintzy. Have you ever seen those locked diaries? I used to have one. Me too. Yeah, anyone could open it. And I love that Cooper just grabs it and rips it open. Like, they're like, but we don't have the key. And he just pulls it open. But yeah, we find out that she was going to meet Jay tonight. Yeah, I, th- I think initially we're thinking Bobby, and then they arrest Bobby, and he talks with Bobby, and he shows Bobby the video. I feel like Bobby is strange. I think he is annoying, and I want him to go down for some crime, maybe overacting. But I don't <laughs> feel like I ever believe that he's capable of being this serial killer. And so, yeah, that is... I'm more curious to know who else was in Laura's life. At this point... I don't think that we're thinking that she's anything other than a good girl until he turns back to that page on February 5th and we get what seems to be trace amounts of cocaine. And a safety deposit key. Yeah, and with Bobby, the first time I watched this, he was very high on my suspect list because he was the boyfriend and I wasn't thinking much about Teresa Banks. Off screen, drop lines. You don't see it, you don't believe it. So... I wasn't sure about him. This time watching, later on, Cooper's going to pass Harry Truman a digital note that says he didn't do it. I'm going to take Agent Cooper's word at gospel. Sure. If he rules somebody out, he didn't do it. He is so intuitive. He's never going to say that person's innocent, and then they're going to be guilty. So if Cooper says Bobby didn't do it, then Bobby's an asshole, but he's not a murderer. Yeah. And that is kind of how it's playing with me, is that Bobby is just, yeah, you want someone to smack him, but I, yeah, he, you can't get the electric chair. He's just not that bad of a character. And if he was, would Shelley really be into him? I, well, she's into Leo, so yes. Yeah, true. That's good point on that one. But Cooper is solving a lot of things very quickly. As, as fast as he can spit them out to his tape recorder, he's also figuring out that, yeah, this videotape was shot by a biker because when you freeze the image on her face, there's a reflection in her eye. Of course, that could never happen, but... Yeah, that, that was the one clue that went a bit too far for me. I'm like, come on. There, there's no high def with VHS tape. Yeah, having lived in 1990, those VHS cassette recorders were terrible, and obviously Lynch is a man who's worked on film way too long and never seen a camcorder. Yeah, and they do really cool, like, you know, what it is is stylistically, they can fade it from that shot to the actual motorcycle. James is sulking off in the woods. He's holding something. And then we are brought back to the crime scene. Poor crybaby Andy has followed Renette's trail up the railroad tracks, found the train car where she was murdered. A change from the way that it was scripted. Originally, it was going to happen in a cave, but they decided they had this on the location. They found these train cars, and it just looks so cool. So it looks like a place where someone would be brutally murdered, and we get, yeah, probably the most famous epigraph of the entire series, Fire Walk With Me, written either in crayon or blood uh, next to a pile of dirt and a locket. Yeah, Cooper says it's blood, and I had forgotten Fire Walk With Me came into it this early in the show, but 
man, isn't that a hook? Fire walk with me. Now we're not just dealing with somebody who has a grudge or wants to stop Ghostwood Estates. Now we're dealing with something else. We're dealing with a psychopath or a spiritualist. I mean, hell, Ghostwood Estates. What is going on here? What does fire walk with me mean? Who wrote it? Even more than that, just look at the way that Lynch is using the surrounding elements. I mean, he does this a lot in a movie we'll be talking about in a couple weeks over at Now Playing Wild at Heart. He'll play with fire imagery, but someone says, fire walk with me. Who was the character we were introduced to with fire? Ben Horn. He spits into a fireplace that's roaring in flames, and we see him with his back turned to us. To me, suddenly, just by the way the movie is put together... It implicates him. There's no reason to think because of what's happening in the plot that he did it, but the way that the movie presents his image and that fire, I do think he is one to watch here. And I do feel like they do that a couple times. I remember my brother really freaking out when they go to the bank and there was a deer head that had fallen on the table. And he's like, that is a clue. That is a clue. That means something. Look for other places where there are deer heads. And there are ones at the gas station. So it made me think about Ed. Yeah, I was noticing the deer heads in this and wondering. Yeah. There's a lithograph in the Palmer house. I mean, there are, with Lynch using it the way that he is, with using data and surrealism to link all of these crazy things, you just don't know what is a clue. It could be something as simple as a prop that is pointing in the direction of who the killer is. Yeah, and in other series, you'd see fire around a character, and when the killer's revealed, if it was that character, you'd be like, wow, going back and rewatching, look at all the stuff they set up. But here, it's just as much misdirection as direction. It's atmosphere, fire as a motif, if not fire as a clue. And it's great that we keep getting shots of the Great Northern and that amazing so Kwame falls water contrasting with the fire it's you know i think of the pacific northwest as a wet place so you got the fire going you've got water it's really creating a mood for me that i'm enjoying it's the cinematography what you realize is when they're in the exteriors everything is cold and ashen and usually very dark certainly we're going to get a nighttime here that is particularly creepy but when they're inside it's it's over tinted they actually make everything feel warm and red and it just feels it, that kind of color contrast yeah i agree it is a part of the look and the mystique of twin peaks that we have this world in this way. And I guess it was a mandate. They said, no blue. They really tried to stay away with blue after Blue Velvet, and that was such a motif. They were like, we're going to try to just use red and darkness. And and I do feel like it does visually, even though there are many similarities with Blue Velvet, it has a different look than Blue Velvet did. And the camera work here is amazing for television. The one shot that I always go back to with this is when... Sarah's looking upstairs for Laura, and we don't follow her room to room. We get this dramatic angle up a staircase and just see her run from room to room. It's just really so much better looking than television was back then. Nowadays, it's like this, but back then it wasn't. Well, you know, it's shot on film, and not everything, certainly these days, almost nothing is shot on film, but not everything even back then. Dramas tend to be done on film, but it really does look like a theatrical film, and that is the shock, is that you just wouldn't expect this to look 
like a television show. Shows didn't look like this. They had, you know, brighter lights and actresses had it in their contract to be filmed in a certain way. They just, there's a look to television and this just didn't meet that standard at all. It, it met the standard of Lynch. And I think that was something that's very striking. Also happening in that bank teller scene, if, if you weren't transfixed by the, the stag head lying on the table, there's also something even more alarming. In the security deposit box, the key was in her diary, we find Flesh World. $10,000, well, that could be for a lot of things. Not for a 17-year-old. I don't know too many 17-year-olds with ten grand in cash. Girl Scout cookies. I know she had a lot of odd jobs. I feel like she could have come up with that money. Maybe winning Homecoming Queen. I don't know. But what kind of high school did you go to where Homecoming Queen got a ten thousand dollars? <laughs> there's there's no cash prize for Homecoming Queen. No, it's obviously unrealistic. But my point is is that Flesh World is an alarming discovery. This really tells us that she was mixed up in something really dangerous. I mean, Fox had the reputation for being the sleazy television station with like married with children and things like that. But come on, this has got to be like pushing boundaries for, you know, primetime TV to have underage kids engaging in prostitution. Like even today, this feels like, ooh, like would this get on well, I guess it would get on to modern television, but it, it does seem like it was pushing boundaries at the time in 90. I don't know that it's prostitution. I mean, what is back in now we have the Internet and we, we can do all of this thing without putting it in print. But these magazines are essentially like personal ads, right? They're come meet me and money may or may not be exchanged when these encounters happen. The original Craigslist. Yeah, I loved freeze framing this magazine because I wanted to look and read Ronette's ad and it was a attractive excitable professional gal hooker <laughs> seeks very discreet meetings am eager to learn from gentle teachers and new things interest me am 35 5 foot 5 120 pounds 36 25 36 photo with an SASE self-addressed stamped envelope are musts also, that's the only escort ad that whole page. Everything else is for swingers, including one that weighs 1,990 pounds. Well, I don't know if that was for her. I mean, I, I did the same thing. I was trying to find all the details, but it's a tight shot on the magazine. It could have been something that was written above her photo. It's definitely her in the picture. And next to her picture, the cops don't notice it because they're not looking for a trucker yet. But because of the way Lynch is going to stage it, we're going to see that that is Leo and his semi. And that both Ronette and Leo are making these personal ads. And that Laura is at least, in the very least, is reading them and then putting them in safety deposit box with large sums of money. It certainly implies that Leo, again, has to be considered a major suspect, at least in the attack on Ronette and Laura. If he didn't kill her, he's at least involved in some way. And to go from that magazine to him threatening Shelley about possibly cheating on him, yeah, he's almost too obvious, but he seems to be the most murderous of all the people we've been introduced to in Twin Peaks. And we meet quite a few people in this pilot that don't even have plots. I mean, we kind of mentioned Audrey more than she really deserves for what little she does here, but we've got another cop, Hawk, who's working for 
Sheriff Truman, who's a Native American and actually seems competent as compared to Andy. Was black in the pilot, and they were going to go a different way with it. It's a cop show, right? You have black and white. But they eventually realized that it was better to use the local people. And so, they, yeah, we have people coming from Hong Kong and Native Americans. And we have Lucy, the talkative secretary at the sheriff's office who i always confused with victoria jackson i could yes. not keep those two straight yeah but she's good comic relief i love the way she over explains everything like what phone to answer she isn't like pete i put her in the category of pete and nadine they're not really functional they're not really suspects but what they allow us to do through their idiosyncrasies and just their obsessiveness is that they make us laugh. And I think that because this movie, this pilot particularly, can get so dark, we're looking for that release. It's, it's nice to have any excuse. So sometimes even a, a corny joke will make us laugh in the Twin Peaks world. But I do feel like the writing is very sharp. A lot of the lines, the banter, particularly Cooper, the way Kyle is just seizing to the part... He's very winning because he is chipper, he's amusing, and he's surrounded by a investigative team that, if they're not of his equal, they're at least as enthusiastic as he is in getting to the bottom of this mystery. And yeah, I mean, comic relief, there's that Dr. Jacoby I mentioned, who's got earplugs in, who we see after we see a strange lingering shot of a one-armed man in an elevator, who will come to matter later yeah everyone's going to matter a little bit but uh we got almost nothing of the one-armed man other if he didn't have a missing arm you wouldn't even notice that he was a character you'd think he'd be an extra but what's important is when he steps out of the elevator dr jacoby's face brightens and he chases him down to the morgue that he actually wants to see the body that may be the only thing that makes me suspicious of him otherwise he just seems like a nut like nadine but yeah he actually is giggling at the prospect of seeing the corpse of his secret patient that's uh well you know what it's the 80s and people love to make fun of psychiatry and shrinks at that time they were a running gag and so the only thing maybe more ridiculed at that point were lawyers and so yeah i get it they want to have a, a crazy shrink you know he's he's more insane than the other people yeah, for some reason, he's got like, it almost looks like rolled up paper stuck in his ears. I don't even know what's going on. <laughs> I never do with him, but his delivery is good. And he wasn't in the original pilot. They just met him during auditioning and said, we'll find a role for you. Same as Shelley. There were just people that they were like, oh, you know what? We like you. We're going to figure it out. We'll just stick you in somehow. That could be why this is an overstuffed cast. There's just a ton of people in the cast is going to grow as we keep going on. I mean, there's just, yeah, some stuff going on with the Ghostwood that we talked about, some stuff going on with all of the cheating, and other characters that we know are going to matter later. I mean, why would you insert a old lady hugging a log in the middle of a town hall if that's not going to come out later? <laughs> log lady. Also not in the script. I'll be talking about her in a few days. But yeah, how this happened is all these things you do credit with Lynch. I do feel like if this were just a Mark Frost show, that it would be a boiled down cast with everyone seeming to have a motive. And here everyone has a quirk. Uh, that's because of Lynch. But I do feel like as the movie has progressed... 
we've moved away from Bobby, and now I think we've got to be looking hard at James because we know a biker shot the picnic video. We know that James has the other half of the locket that was found at the crime scene. We will find out that he doesn't have an alibi for where he was, and he was one of the last people to see Laura. Uh, you you got to be thinking that, yeah, he was awfully mysterious. He, he didn't say much. And maybe, you know, biker stereotypes being what they are, you just naturally assume he's a bad kid. No, he's James Dean, right? With that quivering lip and that constantly mopey face. I'd- yeah, no, he, yeah, he, there is something so innocent looking about him. I never took him as a credible killer. Like, th- this was a ready hearing right here. Yeah. Well, certainly when you get to the biker bar and you find out everyone is listening to shoegazer music and not punk, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> rock, and metal, it was yeah, the most mellow that I've ever seen a, a biker bar. But uh, I hear where you're, what you're saying and I will agree with you. But right now i do think we're supposed to think that james could be a a major suspect and certainly a person of interest you want to talk to him you want to know what he knows and everything about the last 30 minutes of this pilot is about finding james and and pinning down why he has this locket yeah i wish that maybe you have one casting issue i think james marshall they probably could have gotten somebody who would make me believe it a little more. This guy just comes across as a pussycat. I mean, he also in A Few Good Men. This guy just never can carry menace. Those are the only two things I know him from, but... Well, he was discovered through an obsession ad. He was in one of the ads that Lynch shot in the 80s. And yeah, he does have a model quality to him. The cheekbone structure. It does feel like oftentimes they're ogling his face. Obviously, the model here, I feel like him and Donna are like James Dean and Natalie Wood and Rebel Without a Cause. That they're these teenage kids with all of this angst. And what becomes apparent to me is that although we might think that Laura Palmer's crime is hormonal passion, that somebody found out that, you know, she was cheating on someone and that's what did her in. Once we know that there is a serial killer that sticks letters under fingernails, it can't be any of these guys, right? I mean, that you just, it doesn't make any sense that James, Bobby, Mike, or Donna would do this to another high schooler. It's too sordid and too methodical. And Donna, we haven't really talked much about her, but she is such a goody-goody that she fits in this town, but not in this series. Is she? Doc Hayward will say, we're so lucky to have a daughter with you, and I that line chills me. I mean, I feel like she's definitely up to a lot of bad. I never get that from Laura Flynn Boyle's performance here. I get that she's devastated, she's the best friend, she's running out to talk about her friend. I never get anything untoward with her. Yeah, I don't remember what's going to happen with Donna in this series, but in this pilot, I do feel like she's the opposite of Audrey. She is the good girl. I mean, the worst thing she does is sneak out with her sister's bike. Yeah, (laughs) Harriet. I'm not sure we ever see Harriet again. I'll be surprised. I liked Harriet. Does she never show up again? (laughs) We do see Harriet again. I can't remember when, but when I watched it a couple years ago, I'm like, damn, she came back. Wow, okay. Well, you know, just for the record, I prefer the full flower of the evening. That would be my (laughs) advice to her. And see, I was the opposite. I like the blossom. <laughs> but anyway, be that as it may, what they're waiting to do is watch the powder keg explode. They know that Donna knows who the biker is. It's not some strange hiking woman that came up and videotaped her and Laura. It is one of these bikers that goes to the roadhouse or the bang bang club, whatever you want to call it. 
and they're going to wait for her to sneak out and find this person. Cooper and Truman are on stakeout for the evening. And this is kind of where we get the most of our cast assembled, because like you said, Sheriff Truman and Agent Cooper are staking it out. Donna came to meet James. She was followed by Mike and Bobby. And also, by happenstance, Ed and Norma have snuck out for a romantic interlude at a biker bar. That's not an accident, though. I mean, that that makes me think that Ed's kind of... Well, he's crossed a boundary there. I mean, keep in mind, James gave him a note early in the show saying, give it to Donna. I'm going to meet her at 930 at the Roadhouse. He's spying on his nephew. He wants to see what he's up to. Norma called him. She wanted to, you know, cry on his shoulder because she was upset about Laura as everyone else. But I think that he chose to meet there as opposed to anywhere else because he had ulterior motives. He wants to know about James. Everyone wants to know what James is up to. Maybe he suspects him. Maybe he has a reason to suspect James. Truthfully, I just thought this was the only place to hang out in Twin Peaks. You got Norma's (laughs) during the day. You got the roadhouse at night. (laughs) Well, they they can only do so many sets, right? And there's been some great locations here. I just want to compliment all found locations. These are not sets. These are not constructed. That will change tomorrow. But for this $4 million premiere, I think you see it all on screen. I mean, I do feel like they really got the benefit of shooting in Washington State in all of its diverse locations. And I mentioned how I want to do a character spotlight. This is where we get Julie Cruz singing two songs, Falling and The Nightingale. Julie Cruz came into the Lynch world really with Blue Velvet. She was a last-minute call-in to do a song when they couldn't get the rights to the song they wanted. They wrote a song called Mysteries of Love, and she nailed it. And it is a beautiful, beautiful, almost hard-to-peg. There's almost not notes. It's just kind of like a, oh, it's like a wash of sound. And she has this childlike voice. They wanted to see what they could do with that. Keep in mind, Lynch was in the recording booth with... Roy Orbison. At this point, he was a fan of Chris Isaac as well. He was working with a lot of musicians in his spare time because he wasn't directing movies. And yeah, they had cut a lot of her album before Twin Peaks was even written. And so uh, he, one of the things he did while the, the Twin Peaks show was being made was to put on a concert for her to promote this album. I don't know if you've heard about Industrial Symphony Number no. 1. Nope. September 1989, he basically had a one-night-only performance at the Brooklyn Academy of Art in which he suspends her from a wire. She's like the lady in the radiator. She's going to fly down amid, like, there's a guy on stilts that's like a dancing antler, and the little man, uh, Michael Anderson, will pop out playing music. It was it was kind of a performance art musical concert, and it was taped. You can watch it. It was put out on VHS and DVD. I, I did look it up, but I feel like if you want more Julie, and if you want to hear Twin Peaks before it was Twin Peaks turned into a musical event, check this thing out, because I do feel a lot of the musical ideas before there was a show to put them in appear in this concert. And I do feel like, yeah, Julie, she deserves to have this little moment in the spotlight. Her music here and later in the show is going to definitely capture the ephemeral mood. What cannot be said in dialogue, she will do with her voice. 
I like her music here. I hope it doesn't make me a bad fan that after buying her second CD, I never want to search down anything else she did. I'm happy with what she did here. I really wish that I'd never heard her sing the lyrics to Falling. I mean, she does it here. It's on the soundtrack. I like that opening theme so much better when I'm not hearing... Don't let yourself be hurt this time in the damn music. I just want to enjoy Badalamenti's music. I don't want to hear lyrics with it. it does, it's almost ruinous. No, I mean, maybe that's because you know it as something else and you don't want that to be changed. It alters the way you want to perceive something, but it was falling before it was the Twin Peaks theme. And it also has a little blue velvet in there. She opens that song by saying, now it's dark, you know, which is uh, the Dins Hopper line. Yeah, Arnie, if you're a big fan of the MASH TV series, don't watch the motion picture. <laughs> oh, yeah, Suicide is Painless, right? Yes. <laughs> I'm giving her a compliment. I wouldn't buy her future albums, and I don't know that it's about the quality of her voice. It's really, again, how they how they utilize it. I don't feel like she has the kind of voice that I'd want to listen to for hours and hours. But put in this world, she really does ca- capture the sound of a of a girl lost, of Laura Palmer. In some weird way, she feels like she's channeling Laura and her sadness in these moments. Yeah, give me a seven-inch single with with both these songs on each side, and I'd be into that. I, I like these. It does capture the mood of this pilot, yeah, about this lost girl, and just and it captures what Lynch is always going for. You could be in a rough and tumble biker bar, but you're you're gonna have the most opposite music of what you'd expect. Yeah, and don't get me wrong, I like the music in this universally. And just because I don't like her work outside of this, I think she is a perfect fit for this. And I actually was kind of upset. I She disappears from the series and future movies. Well, she's coming back. She will be a part of the new series, and she definitely is a part of Firewalk With Me and a very crucial scene in later in season two. Here she is focused so much, but I do like her music. It sets the mood. It It's good stuff. And I love the way that it's paired with the fight that breaks out, that Mike and Bobby are drunk. They've gone and knocked on Donna's door and, and busted the fact that she slipped out. Bobby is up on the car, drunk and swerving, and Mike is trying to make Doc feel better by saying, oh, I'm not, I, I maybe had been drinking, but Bobby is doing most of the driving. It's, it's these moments of surprise that, that get us to laugh, and where we would normally be nervous or ratcheting up the tension, it gives us that release. But what a beautiful way of showing the fights in these bikers versus jocks. Uh, yeah, set to the Nightingale. I would have thought Big Ed. I mean, he looks like a big, tough guy, and he was the he was in Silver Bullet and very imposing. And so seeing him here, he goes down quick. I did not expect him to go down with a, say goodnight, Mr. Monkey Wrench. Well, it all feels so staged. Again, I think about Clockwork Orange and the way that classical music is uh, put to this ballet that like, literally it feels like people dancing around rather than actually taking swings at each other. It feels expressionistic. So, no, I, I don't feel like he got a whole lot of fisticuffs in there, but it works for the vibe that they're going for, and it gives Donna the cover to slip out with Joey Paulson. That's a biker with a J, but of course we know the one that she's really going to, James. Yeah, Joey Paulson would be a good red herring if we ever met him before this very second. I think he does come back, as I recall. He he does, but 
this is our introduction to him, and he's just basically in the midst of a brawl saying, I'll take you to James. That does not a killer make. Yeah, and I didn't think James had friends. He's such a loner. He spends most of this episode sulking by himself, and really most of the series, as I recall, sulking with Donna. I, I just don't feel that he has other male friends to hang out with. Like, what do they do? Does he go riding at with, with Joey? I, I guess we'll have to wait and find out. I do know that he does have uh, some affiliations with a group of bikers, and, and that will be revealed this week. Yeah, I took it as this was his biker gang that Joey was part of and the ones that were attacking Mike and Bobby. Like, it was all set up for James. But I don't know that that's going to bear fruit later. And yeah, that's what I said earlier. James is just way too pouty and sulky to be believable as a killer. And Donna's going to sneak up to him and they're going to have this talk. And strangely, the day her best friend died, the day the love of his life died, yeah, those two are going to passionately kiss. Well, they've always wanted to. I mean, that's the thing. It's almost like Laura was in their way, which again would make you think, Maybe Donna isn't so pure. Maybe, just maybe, that she engineered that. But I could see them creating that as a believable scenario, again, if I didn't have the fingernail thing. But Donna did not stick the R under Laura's finger. She did not wrap her in plastic. But we do get a clearer picture of Laura's last moments with James, that she was, you know, probably James was the one that called her. Uh, You know, she came home from Bobby's. She slipped out at some point. She was riding with James, and sometime after midnight at a stoplight, she was apparently coked out of her mind, not herself, and ran off into the night. And then some point after that, if we are to believe James, someone else found Laura, and he spent the rest of the night driving alone. But he has the locket. Does that make him still guilty? I mean, it's certainly in the eyes of the cops. They know that that is a damning thing for to have on his person, so they choose to bury the other half of the locket. I never got the sense why that was such a damning piece of evidence. I mean, look, I I knew all kinds of people that had those best friend lockets where they're split in half. Like, just because you find someone on a murdered person doesn't mean the other person, the other half, did something. I, I thought that was weird. But this was on a shrine almost. It was on a little mound of dirt that was made to put it on top, like, and have the fire walk with me next to it. If it was made a big deal of at the time of the murder, that would draw more attention to it than if she had just had it on her corpse. I don't know. At this point, it could be Harriet, right? It sounds like her flowery poetry. I (laughs) I don't know. But they, they decide to bury it, put it under a rock, drive back home. Of course, Cooper catches up with them. They got away briefly, but gives them the chance to have that little romantic interlude. But James is going to get locked up get barked at by Bobby and Mike, who also got locked up for fighting in the roadhouse. I love that bark. I think they were watching a lot of Arsenio. And notice they had that second layer there that Bobby screams at one point and another voice seems to be coming out of him. I don't know if that means anything, but it's certainly unsettling. I don't like Bobby. I'll just put it out there. I I think it does change over time, but he just really gives me the creeps. Yeah, but don't you think he has the best hair for the 90s? Like, that is the most 90s hair I've ever seen. And the funny thing is, I like Bobby here, and I think that changes over time. But I think he's a good foil, and I like the barking. I like the menace he brings. You don't like him as in you wouldn't want to hang out with him. No, no, but I like him in the show. Well, yeah, I'm not disagreeing with that. I'm saying I don't like this kid. He really bothers me. 
I don't have that feeling about Mike. Mike seems like a good guy. Bobby seems to be like the bad one. I don't know. Mike goes by the name Snake. That's always a bad thing to me. Mm. I keep forgetting that because I don't think that ever is brought up again. <laughs> so I, I keep forgetting that he is Snake. But Bobby, yeah, the he just oozes creep from the moment he walks into school and the way he treats the cops and everything. But... I don't really feel too much menace for James. I don't really think James has to watch his back too much from those two once they sober up. But we end on a really surprising note, and one I never would have suspected. Sheriff Truman's having an affair among, along with everyone else. He's not cheating on anyone, but he has a secret lover in Josie Packard. Yeah, I mean, everyone's hooked up in this thing. Yeah, and I love that. I love that he's the last person we're thinking about after a day like this, where we've had so much to process. He seemed like just the character that you, you explain things to, right? He exists purely so that Cooper can prattle to him all that he's figured out. But no, he has a life of his own. Of course he does. And the woman that opened this TV show is waiting for him at the scene of the crime. That, you know, she's there waiting in the coat and they talk about the fact. It's a really haunting moment where Truman muses about the fact that it was probably this time, 24 hours ago, that Laura was being killed. And here we are looking at the spot where she'll wash up. And there are some deleted scenes on the Blu-ray set where there was a scene of Truman in the office and Josie Packard calls in and Lucy says, Josie Packard called and there's somebody prowling around. He's like, probably another rodent, but I'll go check it out. And that's why he starts with the line, someone wanted to see the sheriff and all of that. Well, my version did not have any deleted scenes, but I know that almost every episode in season one had lots of deleted scenes. They they overshot. Imagine that. David Lynch shot more than he needed, but um, they were constantly having to rearrange and cut things out. But uh, I'm, I'm... You may not have just got it. It's like on disc seven. Oh, okay. I haven't gotten that far then. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, there were a few scenes cut out, nothing of much consequence, but a couple of things that are just connective tissue that when you see, you're like, oh yeah, that explains this one thing that, because it's Lynch, I don't know that I ever am asking for the explanations, but sometimes they were there. One thing I do have an explanation for, and that did bug me though, the very last shot of this episode, Sarah Palmer asleep. Not quite. She's smoking. Yeah. She's sedated, True. I think. We've got juxtaposed images of Laura Palmer. I mean, there's two images of her. One is the homecoming queen photo that we saw focused in the trophy case at school. It's behind Sarah Palmer here. We juxtapose that against the picture of her dead wrapped in plastic. But Sarah Palmer has quite a conniption just because somebody's picking a locket out of some dirt. She's screaming like she's under attack. And we're seeing a glove in dirt. I'll admit, it kind of weirded me out when I was 15, I guess. And I did not get that that was part of the vision. I get that Sarah might have some psychic abilities. Like, she's seeing... She's got the shining. Yeah, and she's seeing something here with Laura. I did not get that whoever's digging up this necklace was part of that vision. I thought that was, like, the cliffhanger for the pilot is, like, oh, someone knows that half of the necklace was actually buried and has taken it. The meaning is not very clear. It, it could mean lots of things. Either she's awakening because of a frightening thought, 
or you know who knows she's high strung maybe the medicine has worn off and she's back to being you know totally out of her mind but i think that it certainly will become clear when we see the episode tomorrow that she is having visions the shining as it were and it does remind me of the way that Kubrick would film those visions that Danny would have, uh, her shaking, all of that. Uh, what she sees, yeah, is someone, too bad she can only see a close-up. I mean, too bad she can't look up from the vision and see who's actually doing it. But it is a pretty good hook. It means that somebody was following James and Donna, that, that on a deserted road in which no one would be passing by just by happenstance, there's a stalker. There is somebody that knew they knew something. And is it Ed, since he was the one looking for him? I, I don't know. It's a man. That's what we can take. Is it from the hand, the gloves, the jacket? It's a man digging in the dirt. But Leo, Ed, anyone who's not in jail or sleeping with Josie Packard is a suspect. Yeah, and something I've never noticed before it it's only because of the pristine quality of the blu-ray transfer that i now own that i'm able to see something it had to be pointed out to me but in this shot we also see killer bob the stringy haired phantom of the series as she's sitting up if you look at the mirror above her there is bob staring into that mirror I kept hearing stories about Bob in the mirror. I had to Google for this <laughs> screen cap where somebody literally circled it and pointed an arrow to it. And yeah, that was an accident, but it was an accident after Lynch had already planned the international ending. And the reason Sarah Palmer is screaming in this scene and everything is because this was all shot for the international ending and her real vision isn't some glove in the dirt. She's seeing Laura Palmer's killer, Bob, in the bedroom. Yeah, that she has, I guess we can talk about it. Jacob, did you have an opportunity to see this alternative, close the mystery ending? I did not. I read, I read about it, and it didn't make a whole lot of sense. And hearing your description doesn't make a whole lot of sense either. I, it'd make this a very maddening movie to me to have this ending. Well, again, I'll be curious to know your thoughts on Mulholland Drive because I think it does something very, very similar. But uh, yeah, we just got to twist it and, and do something. I don't know what you could do. I mean, think about it from Lynch and, and Frost's perspective. If you had to write an ending and you didn't want to tweak anything about the pilot, and nor should you, it's masterful, don't touch a frame, but how do you sum all of it up? Cooper is going to bed at the Great Northern saying it's going to be a long mystery, and then a couple minutes later, he gets a phone call from the one-armed man saying, come to the hospital and I'll show you the killer. I mean, that's... I'll give Lynch this much. He really got very creative towards the end, and it allowed him to think about things that will become instrumental and iconic with Twin Peaks. It's The killer wrap-up is dumb. Yeah, a lot of this footage we're going to see. They incorporated in future episodes, and I yes. always wondered how it worked, but I was paying attention to credits and things, and it was shot for this pilot, and then they'd cut it into future episodes. But Bob in the Mirror is far more visible in the international cut. Some stuff that isn't in the international cut is like Lucy and Andy at home. Their domestic life looks really dull. And I don't think we knew that from the show either, that they were a couple. We saw that she was very sympathetic towards his tears, but I, I wouldn't have necessarily guessed that they went home and played 
you know, paddle ball and played taps on the trumpet and all of that. It seems like a very strange uh, commingling that they got going. And furthermore, I mean, there's is there no explanation for the R under the fingernails or the J? Or, I mean, it's... no, there is. They okay. explain the R because they ask what he's spelling. And we know that the killer is Killer Bob. He was spelling Robert. His proper name. Okay. <laughs> Which does not have a J in it. <laughs> no, no, Teresa. Well, no, J was what Laura wrote in her diary about who she was meeting that night. And that was James. But the letters that are involved are the R that was under her fingernail. And we're told that Teresa Banks, a year ago, had a T put under her ring finger. So there you go. It's going to spell Robert. And honestly, I think that that may hold true. I actually think that that is going to be true when we get to the end of this. I can't remember anything else he might be spelling, what the killer is doing with that. But we'll see. It's hazy in my mind what that all was. And Here's the reason you should see this, Jacob, though, is we're going to see a lot of what happens in the third episode. And so I'll be referencing this international ending, but Cooper and Truman go to the hospital where Mike is just waiting. And we did see the one-armed man in the elevator earlier. And he's just standing in a surgical suite saying weird things. And I never would have paid attention to the fact that he's in a surgical suite. But when we see this footage in episode three, and I'm like, why is there a scale for organs behind him? We know that's why. And also, then, yes, he does lead them to the basement where his former roommate, Bob, is having some kind of ceremony with a mound of dirt and a ring of candles, really lame, satanic stuff. And if you look at the wide shots, it looks so generic and not scary. But the close-up shots do, and the stuff they recycle, scary, eerie, and atmospheric, and the stuff they cut, yeah, it really robs the scene of menace. You get the sense that they're both phantoms, this one-armed man and this killer Bob. I don't know what relationship we're supposed to think they might have with Mike and Bobby. Perhaps it's them as older men. I It was a thought I had at any rate, because we are going to jump in time. Uh, but uh, maybe it's a coincidence. In this international version, I don't see how it could be anything but coincidence, because all the other characters, it's happening that night, nobody else is aged. What's kind of frustrating is not only is it solved up quickly, but it's totally would have happened without Cooper's involvement. Cooper is called there just to be a spectator as the one-armed man shoots killer Bob and then dies. Oh, so Coop, Coop doesn't even get him. No, no. no. The cops, they have their guns drawn, but they do nothing. They literally watch the one-armed man like put down this man that he knew was in the basement. That's why he was prowling around the hospital in that brief moment we had him earlier in the elevator. He knew that Bob was an evil spirit that preyed upon the infirmed and the sick, so he was here in the hospital to catch him, and he does... And then he dies because I think there's a symbiotic relationship between good and evil. And uh, we're going to see that play out as well. The one thing you said, because this was a high def Blu-ray, you saw stuff you never did. I never noticed until watching this international ending that Bob has a tattoo on his shoulder that says fire walk with me. Mm. I couldn't ever make that out on my, you know, I was watching this in 1990 on a, 15 inch television i was lucky it was color and when i rewatched it it was on crappy vhs and 
Mike talks about how there was a tattoo of evil on him, so he took the whole arm off, and I'm guessing he had also a fire walk with me tattoo. He hangs out at hospitals. Perhaps he should look into laser removal, but he hacked the limb off. Yeah, perhaps he should talk to Dr. Jacoby, although that might not help him. But it's an ending, and maybe not narratively satisfying, certainly not in the way that it built up all of the other characters that suddenly become meaningless by this revelation. But if that's an ending, what the hell is this coda? I mean, I know what it is in terms of the series, but in terms of treating this as a movie, to end with the literally words on the screen that say 25 years later, and now Cooper looks like he has a skin condition. I I never really got that was old age makeup. It looks like eczema. He's in the red room with the backwards talking little man and a blonde that looks exactly like Laura. This is so out of place. Does it play out just like the episode will later on? Exactly. Word for word. Okay. Essentially, David Lynch just wanted to do a weird ending. To He didn't want to have narrative closure. It horrified him to think that he could have this weird show that had a tidy wrap-up and there would be no mystery left. What is Twin Peaks without lingering mystery? So he created a continuing mystery. And this was all just unscripted, freeform stuff that I think we've seen this before. And I mentioned Kubrick. This is kind of the end of 2001. This is like when he went into the Stargate and was suddenly in that posh room and aged as an old man and experiencing something. Even some of the sounds feel similar to what Kubrick did there at the conclusion of that very trippy 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yeah, we don't get to see the aliens dance like the little man, but I do remember this scene and yeah i was thinking back that yeah the makeup doesn't look like eczema to me it does remind me of 2001 yeah and what i find interesting is lynch was just stuck for trying to figure out an ending he literally went outside leaned against a car the car was warm and he got a vision of a red room came back inside wrote this ending for the international pilot and it will influence the entire series and create some of the most iconic visuals of the entire series and it's because he leaned against a car. Yeah. That sounds like Lynch. <laughs> we'll talk about it in more detail on Sunday, but it is an ending that is worthy of Lynch. I will say that about it. It is not narratively satisfying, but it is what you would want David Lynch to do to you and how he will leave you feeling most of the time when you watch movies where he has creative control. I basically see this scene as a big middle finger to whatever European audience gets to see this. Because to end with Laura Palmer saying her arms bend back, whispering in Agent Cooper's ear as the little man dances, I almost wondered if he filmed this just because he had the budget for the pilot and could reuse it later. But no, he just filmed it for this pilot and then decided this was going to be crucial to the series. Did you see Mulholland Drive? Never. Oh, interesting. We will revisit this conversation then. But that is it for the pilot. I have to say, after you showed it to me, Stuart, the very first time, it's a great hook. I said this way back on Now Playing when we reviewed Eraserhead, that for me, I love Lynch's style, but he's got to hook me. And who killed Laura Palmer? It's high concept. It's an instant hook. I want to know. And with all these characters floating around... There's a plethora of suspects. Yeah, to me, it's perfection. I mean, I honestly think it's flawless. 
and rare do I not have something to gripe about, but honestly, every detail. It's really a structure that I think really bears worthy of studying, hard studying. Maybe you won't figure out who killed Laura Palmer, but you'll learn a lot about good filmmaking. You'll learn a lot about how to introduce and explain characters without having people give it all away in expository dialogue. I really feel like things are conveyed by sound, by passing reference, fades. The whole cinema language that Lynch has developed throughout his career really aids him superbly in setting up the soap opera. And to me, it will never hit this height again. This is crystallized, a, a perfect vision of his small town world. But I do deeply enjoy where we're going, and I hope folks will be able to follow us for the next several weeks up until we get to Tuesday, March 28th, and go back to now playing where we cover the Firewalk With We movie every day. Until then, we are going to be putting out something Twin Peaks. And if you want to hear all of these episodes, and they're not going to be this long, this pilot, we had a lot of introductions to do, but they're at nowpeakingpodcast.com. It's only going to be 99 cents an episode. It is a donation drive to benefit Now Playing, Now Peaking, the shows we do, and you can find that again on our Podbean page for Now Peaking Podcast, or if you want the season pass that gets you all the Twin Peaks reviews for 12 months, that's only going to be $29.99. So quite a savings, because right now, based on what Showtime's saying, it's probably going to be about 42 podcasts. So we hope you can support the shows we do and join us as we unravel the mystery of who killed Laura Palmer. But for the end of this episode, guys, final thoughts. Who do you think at the end of this pilot, if you had to pick somebody and put them on trial... Who do you think is the killer? Jacob? As far as this pilot goes, before I get into who I think the killer is, you know, Stuart, you're, you're talking, you feel like this is almost perfect. I, I do feel like modern audiences might have problems with some of that soap opera stuff. And definitely watching the modern television, especially the stuff on cable, this does feel ahead of its time where it's, it's coming from someone that is a filmmaker and they're applying that to television and making it more cinematic. I feel like that is almost the expectation today with a lot of the great cable shows is that it... Yes, they're in episodes, but it feels cinematic. So I, it, though I had gripes with those soap opera aspects, yeah, I do feel like I watched this pilot. I want to tune in to the next episode here. I, I like the quirkiness. I like the, the funny characters. I like the mystery. Arnie, you said you like that hook of who killed Laura Palmer. It's not just who killed her. It's it, For me, it's what does Laura Palmer mean to Twin Peaks? There, there's just this air about her that I want to know why is she so special to everyone and why does this death mean so much? As far as who did kill her, uh, if I had to go off the characters from this pilot... I don't know, maybe Leo? He, he's the biggest jerk, it seems. <laughs> like, we don't get a whole lot of him, but we do get a sense that he's dangerous, that Shelly, his wife, is scared of him, Bobby's scared of him. I, I don't think any of these teens are a threat, but yeah, maybe Leo. Stuart. Agent Cooper, of course. Surprise, no one would suspect it. Agent Cooper killed her. <laughs> he was really close by. 
Yeah, and he he's looking for an excuse to come and show off everything he knows. Why do you think he knows so much? It's because he did it. Well, in all seriousness, I do think that this movie version, the extended version, actually does tell you the real truth. We saw the killer. It's Killer Bob. It is this stringy-haired phantom that uh, appears to Sarah Palmer in the mirror. He is the killer of Laura Palmer. They have told us who that is. His relationship to the rest of the cast is going to be a larger mystery that won't be explained for two more weeks. And again, we should say, Arnie, we're not going to spoil it. We know, I think you know too, Jacob, right? You saw the whole series, right? I do. I do know who it is. Okay. All right. We all are pretending like we don't know what we know as we go through this. But I think that's part of the fun of revisiting it, is seeing all the misdirections and all the, all the ways that it could be. Because at this point, when they scripted it and shot it and showed it to ABC executives, they did not know for certain what they were going to do or who the killer would be. But given that the real pilot, not the international version, but the real pilot doesn't even have Bob in it. No, he's there. He's there. In th he's in the mirror for half he's a second. Barely. That doesn't count. That does not count. <laughs> You can't count the stagehand who was accidentally in the mirror. If you had to pick from the characters we're given, do you remember the notes you were taking? All right, Agent, Agent Cooper. Cooper. And me, I don't know if I would call this perfection, mainly because there's some actors finding their footing as characters. Some of the relationships don't meld. One of the things about television is you really need to give the actors and the show a few episodes to find their footing. But Lynch's filmmaking here is tremendous. It is among his best of the works I've seen him do. I love this episode, and Leo did it. <laughs> so we're in agreement there. It's Leo. Yeah, you and I are on the same page. Leo is too much of a mean, violent outsider. When this was over, I'm like, well, let's just find out how Leo did it, and we're going to have 30 episodes to figure out how they did it, or if he did it. But I do hope you can join us, at least for some of the best episodes here at Now Peaking. Every day we get a new one. You can watch along. It, it's not a big commitment. I think episodes are only 45 minutes. A couple of them are two hours. But by and large, you can watch an episode a day and then see what we think about them. They're going to be shorter shows. We're not going to do what we did today and release a two-and-a-half-hour episode for every episode of Twin Peaks. They'll be, hopefully, I think we're shooting around... 30 minutes for each show. So Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. You may think I've gone insane, but I promise we will podcast again. Blow the whistle, Josie. It's quitting time. Thank you for listening to this premiere episode of Now Peaking. This is, excuse me, a damn fine cup of coffee. I've had, I can't tell you how many cups of coffee in my life, and this, this is one of the best. If you would like to hear reviews of every single episode of the Twin Peaks series, including the upcoming Showtime season, head to nowpeakingpodcast.com. Sheriff Jerome, to see this kind of investigative genius at work, just a real treat for me. We will be releasing one episode a day through the end of March, and then a weekly review as each new episode comes this summer. We're going to need some more coffee. You can hear these episodes on our site or through the Podbean podcasting app. You want a lot for your money. And I want a lot for my time. Each episode will be 99 cents. Or you can get a season pass covering all three seasons of Twin Peaks, 
over 40 episodes for $29.99. We're going to be able to get it for a song. One verse, no chorus. All money raised goes to pay for the operations of Now Peaking Podcast and our parent show, Now Playing Podcast. Does this include a gratuity? Yes, sir. Now that you've heard this review, head to our forums and share your thoughts on this episode. The link to our forums is at nowpeakingpodcast.com. Why are we from the first Singapore song? And there's always music in the air. You can also follow us on Twitter, where we are now peaking, or on Facebook. Links can be found from nowpeakingpodcast.com. The idea for all this really came from a dream? Yes, it did. If you want to hear reviews of all of David Lynch's films, they are at Now Playing, the movie review podcast, found at nowplayingpodcast.com. This is like some kind of miracle, a, a phenomenon. You can also find hundreds of other movie reviews, including Inception, Memento, Blade Runner, and more. One day, my log will have something to say about this. Also at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash book, you can order Now Playing's film review collection, Underrated Movies We Recommend. This book has 125 reviews about films you probably haven't seen, but you should. I mean it like it is, like it sounds. I've got a lot of cutting and pasting to do, gentlemen, so please, why don't you return to your porch rockers and resume whittling? Now Peaking is edited by Heath, Stephen, David, and Arnie. For as we know from experiments conducted on American GIs during the Korean War, sleep deprivation is a one-way ticket to temporary psychosis. And I'm working on a three-day jag. Now Peaking credit narration by Brock. You have to speak up, hearing's gone, long story. Got these things cranked up to the max. Now peaking graphic design by Justin. But I know I speak for everyone when I say that uh, we appreciate and understand the value of your work. Music is by Angelo Badalamenti. Music arranged by Aaron Lepley. Hear more of Aaron's music from the link on nowpeakingpodcast.com. I can't help hearing it in my head. Like some haunting melody. Now Peaking is produced by Arnie Carvalho. Are you proud? No, achievement is its own reward. Pride obscures it. This podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created or produced the well-known TV program Twin Peaks. Now Peaking is an independent television review podcast with no affiliation with Twin Peaks Productions Incorporated or any other company involved in the publishing, creating, or distribution of that show. As your attorney... Your friend and your brother, I strongly suggest that you get yourself a better lawyer. All audio and music used in this show are the property of their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. He wants his file with the U.S. attorney. Sign it under F or forget it. The opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. It looks like we're 100% certain that we're not sure. Now Peaking Podcast is a Vinganza Media Production, copyright 2017, all rights reserved. 
and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. The owls were flying. The owls were silent. I wanted to know who shot that motherfucker. Oh, can't cuss on the show. I loved Fox, though. Gary Shandling, Married with Children, know, all around this time. I was a Fox time. person growing up. Simpsons. How dare you, Stuart? Parker Lewis can't lose. Married with Children. How dare you? <laughs> I watched Werewolf. Do you remember that one? Yes. Like, oh, no. Hey, yeah. how, you, know, you know what got me into Fox was Alien Nation, the TV series, oh, with that Mick Jagger yeah. lookalike. Oh, and that theme song. <laughs> Still the worst theme song I've ever seen put on television. <laughs> I hope everyone is going to be able to join us for the entire run of Now Pinky... Pinking. <laughs> I hope everyone is... I'll be honest. I'll be honest. I got a plane. I think you should sing Julie Cruz during every airplane interruption. I don't have the pipes. Um, maybe if I castrated myself. The stag head lying on the table. There's also something even more alarming, and that is... God damn it. Another airplane. No, it's a motorcycle, Ralph. Oh. James. I was going to say, is that James out there? <laughs> no, it's the whole from the roadhouse. <laughs> <laughs> he wanted to cut an album. Part One of the things he was doing during those lost years where he wasn't directing a movie is flying airplanes outside Stewart's house. I'll just start over.